All right, welcome everybody. This is a special edition of RC After Hours, and this is going to be really exciting. So, if you're listening now, you'll notice this isn't the usual Sunday morning podcast. So, sit back, relax, strap in. This is going to be a good one. Joining us today, everyone's favorite crazy Canadian up there in the Great White North, Andre Russo. It is white. white. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Good morning. I'm your host, Chris Ronquiglione, and our special guest today, someone probably may not have ever heard of, but put out he puts out some amazing products. His name is Alpha Enos, and he is a senior product developer for Motion RC, and we were gonna we are gonna talk lots of airplane stuff. Enos or Alpha Enos, welcome to the RC After Hours show. How are you? I'm doing great, guys. Andre, did you write that uh, intro, by the way? Did I? No, I don't do any writing. That's all, Chris. <laughs> it just comes <laughs> off the top of my head. I, I sometimes I, I if I listen back, I'm like I don't even remember saying any of that stuff. But I was so, rocking to it. It's good. It's good. Oh, thank you. Oh, the music. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny because when we when we started, I think Chris and I spent about what two weeks oh, yeah. throwing music back at each other yeah. uh and uh yeah that that's one of the ones that we could agree on we have all very different tastes in music apparently yeah so say we all uh so alpha what i generally do with all our our newer guests is we like to get a little bit of background uh where you're from how you got started in rc you know how maybe you got started in the business why you know what, what what's your passion i mean just give us a little details of uh you know, who you are and how you got started in this hobby. Well, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> uh, no, I, um, I'm i from Hawaii originally. And, really? Uh, military family. Yeah, Hawaii of all places, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, raised in Hawaii with a, with a military family. Daddy's an Air Force guy and mm-hmm. um, and grew up on the flight line watching watching him get into aircraft and, and just dreaming and and imagining myself in that seat and one of the fondest memories I have as a kid of is of he and I going out to the tarmac uh, near the tarmac this is way back in the day when you could do such things and we'd sit there and listen on the radio as as big heavies came in and we would sit there and it was one of those tranquil times when we get old and I don't know jaded or life happens and we get away from I think those fundamental formative periods in our, in our lives when we just really feel good you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. and and I really looking back now more than I understood then I really felt good being near an aircraft I really felt good listening to them seeing them smelling them <laughs> and 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 all that flight was all that it meant um, for I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God right one of those poems as as this weird kid in Hawaii growing up I gravitated to and it resonated with me um, because of the dream and the fantasy of flight and uh, and long story short I, I I decided after a career in in other industries which were which were very different and probably more uh, what we would do, what we would say corporate I came to a point in my life where I decided I needed to plug into something that was just fun 
and got back to those feelings of of just understanding and 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 reaffirming to one's own self that this is what I was supposed to do and uh, and I, f- I found Mark and Tom, the founders of Motion RC, and we came together uh, a few years ago. And since then, I mean, what has happened? It's it's it would take as many days as we've been together to to go back and talk about what we've done, just because of the lightning pace. I think that we've been able to develop and grow and respond to our customers and grow a customer base and and build a business. Mm-hmm. But really, at the same time, again, in hindsight, looking back and seeing, wow, we've just we've really just had a lot of fun. And uh, in so in in that way, uh, in that way, I'm very I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged and very and very blessed. I think to be able to be here and talk to you guys about about aircraft and uh, whether they be full size or RC or the junction in between, which is something we're really excited at Motion RC about talking about. That's mm-hmm. um, this is where I'm supposed to be. So. All right. So obviously, you didn't just jump right into uh, Motion RC and start. You know, developing planes. So, how did what did you start doing there? How did you get your start? And did you find it overwhelming, <laughs> or, or or maybe I shouldn't say overwhelming, but you know, you you realize quickly that way more goes into designing and and doing R and D on a on a foam airplane than what you thought. You know, I think my sisters would probably weigh in if they ever listened to this. They are the ones who were under the most distress and sort of surmounting challenges. In, in, in my process of learning how to build aircraft, you know, I tell the story that I grew up with three sisters. Oh, and when I I'm was sorry. a kid, I want to say, I, I know, no brothers, by the way. I'm so, sorry. <laughs> so, uh, so it, with a lack of brothers, I, I remember being eight or nine and finding my way into my sister's, uh, my sister's drawers. I took my mom's camisole, I took my sister's hair dryer. Um, <laughs> And I sort of rigged together what I uh, what I thought would be a hot air balloon. Um, <laughs> you know, now, I understood that it wouldn't actually fly because I, I understood, of course, you know, the silk wouldn't really be able to hold enough volume of air to mm-hmm. get warm enough to achieve lift. But um, but it was that it was building Star Wars X wings out of toilet paper rolls and, <laughs> and chopsticks and tissue paper. And going to the hobby company at the Pearl Ridge in Hawaii and, and dreaming of the day I could buy that Cox. Um, and then finally being able to buy it and build it and, and smell dope. Uh, <laughs> not, the, not the bad dope kids, yeah. you know, modeling dope, <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> but, uh, you know, getting my hands uh, dirty and, and cutting balsa. And, 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 and I think where a lot of our, of, of our customers and where myself start is just figuring stuff out right mm-hmm. who needs manuals taking that yeah. box of sticks and cutting it up and realizing everything's crooked because you mm-hmm. didn't use a flat and and then doing it again and spending months and building something and crashing and doing oh. it again so in the same way i think that a lot of us as modelers came into the hobby of of then flying um it's really the same pathway i think for for a designer for a developer for i engineer. agree yep um we all have those ideas. I think the beauty of the modern hobby is we have access to DIY and YouTube, and and every armchair quarterback, you know, who's got a camera and and some glue and some sticks, who who has an opinion. We can access that information and really sort of learn as we go. A lot of what I do at Motion RC now is 
as as the product manager is really manage the 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 procession of different products through their developmental stages from sketching them out on actual napkins <laughs> in a restaurant mm -hmm. and, and all the way to to the CAD obviously uh, through the CNC and prototyping process and evaluations and then of course the strategy of it all what aircraft do we make and when at which price point at which detail level for which customer and really trying to envision the person opening that box that that event happens sometimes almost two years right after uh, we first get that idea mm -hmm. so there's this there's this commitment to the end understanding the end is a very long ways away and yet you tell yourself well tomorrow we have the airplane that's coming out that we've been working on for a year or a year and a half or two and and uh, and along that process it's problem solving in the same way that if you don't know what you don't know you learn it or you find someone and hire someone who does mm -hmm. and and along the way you DIY um, <laughs> so in that sense I, I always try to encourage people when they say alpha how do you do all this and I first of all let everyone know I'm just one of many people I'm the, I'm the tip of the spear but one of many people who are involved in our organization in making these products what people love but at the same way uh, in in essence I'm the same as anyone who's ever picked up that exacto knife and just decided uh, I think I think the battery's too small you know <laughs> and start hacking into something to make it fly right um, this it just so happens in, in in my business the tools are different. We're now using yeah. compu computer design and 3D printing for rapid prototyping and and different types of things. And um, you get into the math and the engineering of it all, because obviously Reynolds numbers don't scale as you get smaller. Mm -hmm. But um, but the principles I I always try to encourage people are the same. We can all do what I'm doing. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so when you first got in with motion rc then were you what did they have you doing did you say well, okay you know start maybe coming up with some designs or what well, you know how did you what did you start with you know proudly i started in customer service oh um i came to motion rc from a, again a very different industry and uh and at the time motion rc was three or four people three people actually and and I said, look, I, I fell in love with Mark and Tom's vision for Motion RC. They, the founders, uh, self-made men who are hobbyists and for whom the idea of a hobby company that serves the customer wasn't rocket science, but it should have just been, it should have just been um, natural. And they recognized they didn't have it; they really wanted it. I came into that and frankly said, I'll do anything. I just, I want to <laughs> be here, you know. Right. Um, and in, and insightfully, I, we chose to start with customer service, um, not just because logistically at the time we were all doing customer ser service, but because again, I think, I think for us, what what makes us tick is our customers, our accountability to our customers, and our shared vision with our customers. So. Customer service when you're sitting at the front lines uh, you know, 10 hours a day and you're listening to people say, how do I program that radio again? What's a battery again? Mm -hmm. You know, I want to buy my son this $500 
airplane for Christmas. He's he's twelve. Yeah, you know, <laughs> listening to those types of questions um, and seeing the commonalities. Right? Gosh, I wish you guys would just X. Or I'm so grateful everyone can finally buy something like Z. And finally seeing those commonalities and those patterns have then informed. Um, informed us as we've gotten more involved on the development side. Now to back up, MotionRC is is a distributor. We're a distributor and a and a purveyor of, of many products from fixed mm-hmm. wing aircraft to rotary to run cam and FR sky radios and, and a whole entire host of products. But I think what we're really known for and really part of the reasons why we've we've agreed to do this really fun podcast with y'all is because we're known for the aircraft. Right? Mm-hmm. That isn't. This is a bit of a different thing. It, and for your listeners, I do want to clarify: we are not a manufacturer, and we say that sort of proudly. We're a distributor. We um, we work with our manufacturing partners. Freewing's probably the most prominent example. I spend several months a year, uh, eight to nine this year, in China at various factories. And one of them is Freewing, and we work with them to develop their products, to, to plan out what will be made and when, and those that calculus I mentioned earlier, and trying to identify products that, that customers will love, customers around the world will love. And then we enable that manufacturing partner to produce those products, and of course I'm involved in QC and flying and et cetera, et cetera. But we sort of were really proud of the fact that after that product is produced, Motion RC is the exclusive distributor for freewing in the continental United States, mm-hmm. but there are many other sellers of of freewing products throughout the world that have access to those products that, frankly, I made, right? Um, and and someone in Dubai, uh, I just actually saw a container go out there about a week and a half ago. So so someone in Dubai is gonna is gonna fly an aircraft that me and my team were involved in. And that has a certain level of, of, of we think creature comforts and sort of modernity, mm-hmm. um, and and obviously we put the blood, sweat, and tears to make those those changes happen. But that's something that someone in Dubai, whom I'll probably never meet, right. will benefit from. And that's really where, you know, cue the violin music here. That's where it all sort of feels good, right? Uh, kumbaya, it's probably more apropos, <laughs> but you know. It, but it it really means something to us that we're able to influence a manufacturing partner like Freewing, like Dynam, uh, and 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 change the course, the track of those products that then benefit people in the hobby throughout the world. We don't really distinguish if someone's a customer of Motion RC or not. To us, if you're a pilot, if you're someone who wants to fly or who has been flying or someone who has been flying and wants to teach your your son or your daughter how to fly you know we want to make sure you can get access to a good product mm-hmm. um, buying it from me frankly comes secondary and I think I think that that transparency and that um, that desire to invest in the product at the product level emanates from my origins in listening to customers, of course, at Motion RC as, as the customer service manager previously. And then again, just comes back from my own experiences as a hobbyist and kicking it around with, with my friends at the at hobby fields and and trying to figure out what it is that everyone wanted. 
Right. All right, Alpha. So I want to know what was your first project? When did they come to you and go, "All right, it's time. Let's what do you got?" Yes, yeah, so the first project I worked on was the Stinger 90. Uh, the, the Stinger 90 was a was Freeling's first big sport jet. It's about 2012, I think, 13. Mm-hmm. I think. To be honest, I, I can't even remember. <laughs> I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> um, so, but uh, we, we began with the Stinger 90. That was one of the first aircraft that, again, as Motion RC just being a seller, we approached Freewing and said, look, we really have some ideas that we think would make your product better. Our customers are telling it to us. There seems to be a commonality in their, in their preferences, and we agree. Will you... Will you consider doing X, Y, Z, one, two, three, four? Um, and and they actually said yes. And I think another reason why I'm always remiss to sort of take credit here is without the cooperation of manufacturers, yeah. uh, it, none of this really happens, right? We always tell our customers, look, go to your local hobby store, demand accountability. You know, support your local hobby store, but ask them. Are you talking to your manufacturers? Are you talking to your sellers? Are you are you demanding that they send you product before you sell it to your customers in mass? Are you are you demanding that they have a clear warranty policy and sort of a, a communication pathway between the customer's feedback and that seller? You know, because if you don't, you should. Because I think people now expect that, right? So, um, so the idea of the idea of working together is a two-way street, and to get back to your question, it began when when the other side said, sure, we'll listen. Mm-hmm. And then we bombarded them with about 72 <laughs> or 73 different changes, Yeah, right? Uh, it's, it soon became apparent that we needed to find the balance, but um, the other part of that equation is if you make the improvements, will, will it matter? Will the customers notice? Will people? Will it make the aircraft fly better? Uh, be servi- Be more serviceable, um, more accessible, more easy to fly. Just will it be more honest? And the answer, happily, was yes. The Stinger 90 was a massive hit for Freewing and for us and for whoever sold it and continues to sell it. And so that then began the path of the next aircraft. We sort of sat down and said, "All right." So now I guess. You Americans know what's <laughs> what sells and, and 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 what's going on. So what do you want to do next? And mm-hmm. we really began a conversation where the 80 millimeter series that Freewing is sort of known for right now, the 80 millimeter and then the 90 millimeter super scale class. And by that, for your listeners, I'm talking about an electric ducted fan or an EDF. Right. And and that millimeter rating, of course, is is the diameter of of the impeller inside the aircraft. Uh, we really set out to say, I really want to do an 80 millimeter sized aircraft series, a jet series that is well priced at the time, $299. That's accessible for people. They're big enough where they'll fly well. They're they're small. They're not. They're small enough in the sense that they're not going to break the bank. They don't require large batteries. Their wing loading is right at that sweet spot mm-hmm. where they're not. They don't feel like bricks, right? They're they're accessible. Um, no one here, no one listening wants to take an aircraft out or any RC product for that matter, and on day one walk home with with it in more than one hand, 
<laughs> yeah, you, um, you know what? Yeah. You, you brought up a really good point because <laughs> I see a ton of people in our, you know, around our little group or meet people or whatever. They're getting into the hobby that, that love the ducted fan jets, you know, and it's always the same thing, especially the noobs. They want to get a jet and you kind of got to talk them down, uh, you know, off the ladder a little bit and go, eh, you might want to wait a little bit. But everybody, you know, wants a jet. And I think it, it, it's hard to find that balance to where, you, you know, you can make a, a good, efficient, ducted fan jet that not only is fun, has good high performance, but also, you know, can slow down or do some slow flight or that's easy to take off and land. And, you know, I think they've definitely come around in the last couple of years have gotten a lot better. But it just seems like, it, you know, you, we have these um, uh, people that, love the jets are always very intrigued but they're also can be very intimidating you know for the edfs you're you're absolutely right i mean we we get that call every day i want something fast yes. what have you flown before we've, nothing yeah right um, <laughs> we've all been there all of us are like we want to go faster you know right i just want to go faster yeah um which is great you know we've got fast aircraft but part of it as well is is sort of a responsibility as a business and just as a fellow hobbyist, no one wants to see. Every, we've all seen that guy mm-hmm. who shows up at the airfield with that fast aircraft. Everyone knows he or she's not ready for Yes. And it takes a dirt nap 30 seconds after <laughs> yes. rotation, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and we all sort of – no one laughs at that guy. We all feel. Yeah. We're like, oh, yeah, cause it's, that hurts because we been know there. the urge. <laughs> yeah. We've right. all been there. Yes. Exactly. We've all been there. So it's sort of a recognition, recognition that – Yes, we we want to encourage people to jump in, but there is sort of a fight, that fiduciary responsibility to to encourage people. Look, you're probably not ready for that aircraft yet, but can I interest you in in an aircraft that that is sort of the stepping stone and a progression to be able to operate that aircraft responsibly? Mm-hmm. And sure, every day we still have people who say thanks for the tip, but I still want to buy it. They usually call us a week or two later, <laughs> uh, oh, needing man. spare parts. You know, and then we also have the customers who that that customer family who will respect. I think. Look, I'm glad you didn't want to sell me that big, expensive aircraft, and you sold me that cheaper trainer because you you knew that that builds a customer, that builds a relationship, mm-hmm. right? That that cultivates someone who wants to come back and who recognizes that what we say isn't motivated by the desire to sell them something, but is motivated by our, our sincere, sincere desire for them to enjoy the hobby. Um, so so that's why aircraft like the 80mm EDF series began, and since then we just released our, a, our 80mm A4 Skyhawk. So we're three and a half or so years into the series. It's the sixth or seventh bird in the line and and now we've now sort of people recognize that 80 millimeter series is a sweet spot Mm -hmm. we see it on our forums rc universe rc groups and hobby squawk when people say those new pilots every day coming to the hobby scene i know how to fly but i want to fly a jet what's the first one no one's going to say jump into that 90 millimeter you know a10 or f16 i would say yeah yeah, hopefully. Yeah. You know, now guys will say, "Look, I've been there, but try the 80 millimeter Saber. You know, try a 70 millimeter Rebel V2." There are more yeah. options for people to get into the hobby, to get into the EDF side of the hobby, and take their skills maybe that they've taken from 
from other fixed-wing formats, uh, because we often have pilots coming to us in the EDF world who've come to us from Cox 010s, 049s, uh, yeah. Nitro, Balsa, old-school builders, which we love, and and now they want to jump into a jet. So having options for them from the 64, 70, 80, 90 series, from 99 bucks all the way up to 600, have something for everyone to sort of pick, and again, have fun. Yeah. So yeah, and you start <laughs> off. And you start off with a 4S solution <laughs> versus a 6S. But even then, uh, we were talking the other day, uh, and you mentioned something about the batteries, which I hadn't even recognized. And and you were talking about how you uh, had built the series based on the batteries, which uh, it just it stunned me because I was like, oh yeah, look at that. Yeah, battery standardization is one of the is is key, and we're not the first ones to do it. Obviously, the, that 3S 2200 mm-hmm. is that perennial favorite of everyone. That came about, I think, when when early lipo manufacturers just recognized standardized on a battery. Yeah, it makes things much simpler. As that especially becomes. Uh, more and more important as that battery size grows. <laughs> Larger aircraft require bigger batteries. Right. Bigger batteries are more expensive. No one wants to, no one wants to be putting seventy to a hundred dollars into a battery if they only have one aircraft that can use that flight pack. Yep. And so, the advantage of being able to work with a manufacturer like Freewing is being able to standardize. Okay, every eighty millimeter EDF we make. It's going to fly 6L4000, period. Yeah. It'll have battery space, obviously, to CG with other batteries and dimensions and weights. But the stock recommended power system is the same, and the battery is the same. So people can then begin to build their stock. And that 6S4000-5000 will now fly... Ninety percent of our of our eighty to ninety millimeter jets. You know, it'll just you can. So people have now been able to build those repositories, which then it's it becomes a feedback loop where now we're able to produce new aircraft, uh, confident that the the cost of a battery starts to not figure as much. It's sort of been amortized for a lot of our core base. They they have them. Um, and so, for example, earlier this year we released a. Uh, a 1700 millimeter wingspan, 67 inch wingspan A10 Warthog, which uses two 6L4000 batteries. Mm. You know, when we released the F18, the F14, our twin 80 millimeter F14, about a year and a half ago, there's a lot of trepidation there over does the market have enough of these batteries to want to fly two in a single aircraft? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. And so the answer happily then was yes, and, and and even more so now with the A10, but I think that's because of the groundwork that we've done in trying to standardize the batteries. And again, it all comes back down to this isn't rocket science. It's just what we would prefer as pilots ourselves. Um, yeah, you know, Andre and I have had that conversation a million times. You know, he's like, hey, Chris, look at this plane, man. This thing's awesome. I th- you know, think I'm going to get one. And, and what's my first thing usually, Andre? What's the battery size? Battery, what is yeah. it? Yeah, you know, and, and, and when I started the hobby, I was the same way. I mean, uh, and being Canadian, uh, getting a battery here is somewhat painful. And so when the 4S stuff somewhat. started happening, I, I kind of <laughs> stood there and went, "Oh dear, oh dear." And now, like I said, 
I'm on the I'm on the cusp of looking at 6s. So something like what we're talking about is hugely important because mm-hmm. you know a 6s battery, 6s 4000 through 5000, that's a hundred dollar battery for me, right? Yeah. And plus all the import and everything. And you're you're sitting there going, wow, you know, it's got to be worth it. Mm-hmm. But if I know that I can buy like a 6s 4000 and fly that among a bunch of batteries because yeah. for me gone are those days where i say this aircraft is specific to this one and and i've avoided like buying the the 4s 1300s for exactly that reason so it's a, that's super important yeah. but yeah. yeah it's uh it's an it's a gut check and like the 4 the 4s batteries for me this year have just exploded as far as next that's a bad word won't use that grown <laughs> the, the volume in, in the basement have grown sure. so I'm not going to use that other word um, and it's like wow and and then suddenly you know people are saying hey you know and it's it's funny from our end of it is cuz we're always being asked you know what do you think is next you know what are you guys going to try next have you tried this plane you know what do you think of this one and so you know, I know I can strap two, you know, three S four thousands together if I have to, but at the end of the day I want that reliability. So it's 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 nice to know that, that eventually when I do drop down a wad of cash and say, Okay, I'm gonna buy three or four of these and then on the other end for us too is when we go and produce a video of a product you're like oh i only have two or three batteries this is going to be tight mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly yeah there but, there are practical but, concerns that i think impact yeah. us all go ahead. right so um hey alpha i wanted to jump back a little bit because i i made this in my notes when you were talking you know when you first got in and, and talking with free wing and you were you know saying hey we need to change this and do this i have a question for you and i usually ask all the developers this is it seems like no matter, there's a lot of people out there way smarter than me, and I want to talk a little bit about you know scale details and everything. And I'm, I love scale details, don't get me wrong. But I'm not super picky. Like if the plane looks good and flies good, I'm really happy. And it's almost... Ooh, he dropped out. Oh, we did? Did he drop? Yeah, his connection dropped. Yeah, his connection dropped. I'll pick him up again. I'm back up. All right. Oh, there he is. Oh, he's back. Yeah. Woo. Sorry about Great. that. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Safe word. That's pineapple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we're, um, you're talking um, free wing. Yes. Uh, I wanted to jump back a little bit uh, when you first got in in uh, free wing and how you wanted to make changes and this and that. But what I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, scale. I love scale details, but I'm not super picky. And, you know, if the plane looks good flies good i'm really happy and it's almost to the point where the better the plane looks and the more details i just want to look at it instead of fly it and almost <laughs> like a shelf queen but what i want to know from you is is you design you take an airplane from drawing it on a napkin all the way through development to the finished product you know two years later or whatever and put that plane out and it's starting to spread all over the forms and boom somebody will pick up and go Hey, the pilot looks uh, a little shorter, and in that era, they didn't wear that color hat, and or it's missing uh, one uh, rivet here uh, below the uh, cow. You know, <laughs> where they really pick it apart. And does it sometimes frustrate you a little bit, or do you just go, "Yeah, you know what? I I can't argue with them. You know, it was something we looked into, or we couldn't do it because of the manufacturing process, or whatever." <laughs> but does it frustrate you? Um, you know. <laughs> you know, it, it. People would expect me to say yes, um, but in all honesty, I'll I'll say no because, you know, I'm a scale nut 
just as I think more than anyone. Um, mm-hmm. I understand these aircraft. I've, a lot of these we touch, we, we find where the aircraft is physically on display somewhere. And we'll go to talk to a museum and we'll count rivets. And we've, we've been known to do really weird things. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll take profile gauges to canopies to check contours and just, uh, just all range of things to make the aircraft feel right. And I think that's, that's where I do draw the line. When I hear people online talk about an aircraft's scale fidelity uh, in, in the context of the delivered product versus what the real thing is, uh, I recognize, sure, um, there, that's obviously something that that customer to his or her eye that looks amiss. It's a reminder that my responsibility is to make an aircraft that feels correct. And that's a distinction. Mm-hmm. The distinction is not to make it look correct, because if we really wanted to get technical, right? I mean, with it wouldn't fly. It, it, just, it, it really wouldn't fly. I mean, the trailing right. edges on all of our aircraft are far oversized, and the airfoils are yeah. nowhere near. I mean, there are so many changes to aircraft. I see them all. If it ever frustrated mm-hmm. me, I think it would be if someone assumed that I didn't know that you know that rivet was off. Or that yeah. you know that um, that pilot's headset on the pilot figure was not period for that era. You know, you know the thing is I do know that, but again, my responsibility is to mass produce an aircraft that feels correct. And sometimes there are, um, there are concessions that need to be made. I think um, I think a good one is 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 our. Uh, well, gosh, there are many good ones because every single one of, of them have examples. Let's pull, for example, the F-14. F-14 Tomcat, that was for a lot of people a unicorn, right, what we call them the hobby. There was never mm-hmm. a big uh, EDF, electric-powered F-14 Tomcat that swung the wings and did the whole the whole nine yards with retracts and lights and everything. It had never been done before. We set out to do that and and delivered one of the concessions we made is that the main landing gear wasn't fully stowed. Um, it, it it did not rotate 90 degrees and stow fully uh, into the wing roots. Just because to do so, uh, frankly, in that scale was impossible. There's no there's no wall area. There's no um, we understand the 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 strength of the foam and the shear modulus and other various factors of the materials of the materials we're using. And thus, of course, we understand the, the limitations of those materials. And then, on top of it all, we're considering cost and how easy it to mass produce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we made the concession yes. to sort of stow the wheels in, in a certain way where when the aircraft was aloft, about half of the main wheel is visible. Of course, predictably, there are a few people who said, that doesn't look right. I don't want to buy one to each his mm-hmm. or her own. The aircraft is hugely successful anyway because it felt like an F-14. It felt like a yeah. Tomcat. It gave people that experience, and we we're able to find that balance. Anyone who sees any of my posts online will recognize balance is easily my most favorite word because from where I sit, we need to we need to find that balance. I can sit here and make the most perfect Scale Masters winning aircraft. Um, one of our customers, uh, Chris Wolf, is a Scale Masters winner. So guys like that understand, and I like him, understand what you need to do to for absolute scale fidelity. Um, but of course, 
those aircraft cost thousands of dollars, and I, I can't crank yes. them out nearly as much or nearly as quickly as people want to purchase them. At the same time, I, I love what you said, Chris, about there's there are still people all along that progression of I just want it to fly to I want it to look mm-hmm. amazing on my mantelpiece, right? There mm-hmm. are there are listeners on either end of that spectrum and everywhere in between, and so that's where we come. That's where I think Motion RC approaches that uh, that challenge with volume. You can't just make one aircraft. Um, right. As balanced as it may be, you are still leaving out to people who want something that's cheaper and don't need lights or retracts, or or the people who want something bigger and faster and don't want something that's in the middle range. And so we try to make different aircraft of varying sizes at different price points to give people along that spectrum and that and not just that price spectrum but also that detail spectrum uh, choice mm-hmm. and opportunity and there are a few aircraft that obviously jump the lines that we have a 70 millimeter f-16 for example sort of perennial favorite right everyone loves a falcon and the f-16 in the 70 millimeter at 199 dollars it has retracts but they're not fully scale and there's no lights but people really love it, so they buy that one. And then there are the customers who really want those landing gear lights, and they really want a bigger yeah. size, and they really want mm-hmm. um, you know, fully scale articulating doors and all that sort of stuff. And so we make a 90 millimeter version as well. It's about finding it's about finding something for everyone. And to get back to your original question, I never take a harsh criticism as far as fidelity is concerned or any other feature, because by the time something reaches our storefront, it is something that for all of its pros and its cons and its concessions and its features, those are that is a balance that we're happy with. If it wasn't a balance we were content with and confident the majority of our customers would be happy with as well, we would have held it back until we were ready. We've held back right. many aircraft for well over a year, <laughs> for two years actually. The A4 was a good example. We held that aircraft back for almost two years waiting wow. for the balance between market appetite and price and size and performance and and scale fidelity and feature set for all of those things to align. Uh, we have the luxury of patience, I think. And, mm-hmm. and, and it, it pays off. So... You mentioned your series of aircraft. Do you so? Do you see a nice number between all of them, and that's why you're content to produce like your belly landers, your 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 seventy mil class of, of you know uh, you know a nice or eighty mil class of nice EDFs, and then all the way up to your higher six hundred six hundred dollar aircraft. Do you see nice numbers across your your sales to support that, and or do you go? Oh, we're seeing more drive on the sixty-four millimeter, you know, no landing gear belly landers. Let's let's push there for a little while and see how well it goes. Yeah, I love that question. It's it's so astute because it gets to really the core of of what we at Motion RC and what I suspect you know anyone who's in any sort of product sales business is trying to think right you want to be you want to have your ear to the ground while also having your eye on on the horizon and there's a bit of magic there's a bit of 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 luck there's a bit of 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 hope and hocus pocus yeah. and and right. crystal ball or whatever euphemism we want to use but there absolutely is Andre exactly there's the sense of we feel that 
the market trend is moving this way. You know, we we hear that preferences are moving into this space. We believe mm -hmm. that by the time we'll be able to deliver <laughs> something, that need will still be extant. There's there's all of those those all of those things. So far, we've been right uh, most of the time. But but that's only because we recognize that at any moment we could absolutely be wrong, and we take that very seriously. Which is why, again, as I am apt to say, it doesn't seem to be rocket science that you got to listen to your customers. So we try to listen to them as our front line of defense for what they're wanting, what they're what they're not wanting, certainly. Um, and on top of that, of course, we try to infuse our own desires. Sometimes markets, <laughs> sometimes markets are in a malleable state, and they sort of they are as you make them, right? You can almost say, "Hey, everyone, you really want a MIG-21," and and <laughs> and and if things sort of work out, everyone says, "I really want a MIG-21." Um, so, so there's the MiG-21 was really popular for us last year. That was absolutely a gamble and a risk. You know, we we yeah. we, we were making a lot of American aircraft. We're an American company, veteran-owned, mm -hmm. and so you know, that's sort of our bread and butter. That's what we love to fly. It's what we love to see in the air. We hadn't released a a overtly non-American uh, aircraft in the 80 millimeter series for the first two years, and and even back then, two years ago, we recognized, look, guys, if in the first two years all we make are American planes, there will come a time where people will probably, again, looking in that crystal ball, people will probably want something else. People might want this. We think the trend is going towards a bigger aircraft at that smaller price point. And all of those things became what the MiG-21 was. But there is still that aspect of... of, of putting forth an aircraft for the market's consideration and saying, this is why we believe it's really great for this time. And if it's yeah. a compelling argument and the aircraft delivers, uh, then people respond, right? You can't fool the customer. I think that's something <laughs> that we understand at Motion RC. You can't <laughs> fool anyone, certainly not more than once. Um, and if anyone has friends, you probably can't fool them or or their friends, even once, because people talk. It's it's a it's an acceptance of the fact that our customers are educated. Our customers, our our average age is is in the high fifties. Our oh, guys, wow. they've been around, they've mm -hmm. had their careers. Yeah. A lot of them are military, and and we always recognize our military veterans, active and. Um, active and retired, and certainly the families of, of military personnel all over the world. You know, these are men and women who, <laughs> for whom this isn't just a hobby. I think we recognize that for them, it's it's more. It's the continuation of their of their time in the sky. And so all that comes back to. I hope I'm clear in this. All of that comes back to and, and and informs our our idea and our impetus that. You can't try and fool a customer. You just make things as you believe them to be in the absolute best way that they can be. Posit that to the customer that it may be something that they'd enjoy, and then you leave it up to them, right? And that's really the the terrifying and 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 certainly the exciting part of of what I get to do is we get to look back and see if people 
really do respond, right? Um, so that's that's I think very rewarding in that sense. Oh, absolutely. Okay, I got another question for you. Out of the military jets, like just looking through your arsenal of all the military jets you guys have, you know, obviously a lot of companies put out like the F-16 or the F-86 or something like that. But what was one of the hardest military jets that you guys said, you know what, we're going to try this. We're going to develop one. We're going to get it out there. But as you were doing that, you're like, man, I, I don't know. It's This is pretty tough. We can't get it to fly really good or we're having issues <laughs> with this. Whether, you know, we put the scale details, but now it's not, you know, what was the hardest one? And what were some of the problems you ran into? Because just like looking at the F-15, like it looks amazing and the wings, you know, folding up and everything. But that to me looked like. A complete nightmare to try to develop and make fly good. <laughs> you know, you'd be right. The F-14 was a nightmare, but I think to be fair, like like anyone with kids, at some point they all kick you. So <laughs> <laughs> I I can recount and every aircraft gives our team challenges. They're all unique. Um, mm -hmm. While we try to design them, obviously, as we discussed earlier, for the same battery and, and sort of common parts, common servos, wheel sizes, those types of things, uh, just because obviously mass producing it becomes easier with common parts, each aircraft poses different challenges. The F-14 was very challenging in a sense because of the wing mechanism. Uh, for your listeners who aren't familiar, check out our website or just Google Free Wing F-14 and mm -hmm. you'll see a lot of people who post pictures of the top wing cover off of the F-14. There are, there are over 500 parts in that aircraft. Wow. Aluminum, carbon fiber. Uh, people always say, oh, you just make foam airplanes. Like foam plus yeah. carbon fiber, fiberglass, aluminum, brass, ABS. I mean, there's... There's so many uh, components in there, and we like to say we design, we use the material for the mission, right? If you need, it can't all be foam, it'll be too flimsy, it can't all be carbon, it'll be too rigid and expensive, it'll, it can't all be metal, same reason, it can't all be you know, balsa, well it could be, that'll be neat. Um, but uh, there, there's a balance for each mission and each material, and part of that challenge to your question, Chris, is is finding how much carbon do you put in it? How rigid does it need to be? And in right. fact, finding again balance, keyword, between rigidity and a sort of suppleness. If the aircraft is too mm -hmm. rigid, and we certainly found that for the F-14, if the wings were too rigid and the wing mechanism too rigid, then every single bump in the air, every bump and buffet, the aircraft would feel. Shatter. Um, yeah. And so in that sense, we, we needed to allow a certain amount of flexibility into the armature. Uh, so, so you thin down the metal and you fly it again, right? You fly, you, you change the box structure of the wing and you fly it again and you keep going until you find again that balance. Mm -hmm. Harder still, I think, is, um, ironically, this may not strike your listeners as the case, but the smaller aircraft are yeah. definitely... Yeah. are often more difficult to design because you have because you have a smaller wing area. Wing loading comes into right. play. Um, the panel lines begin to get to look a little too large. Your connections mm -hmm. need to be really thought out. You can't be putting a lot of plastic to to receive screw emplacements, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
finding how to stuff things into something very small <laughs> becomes a challenge. Yeah. Our recent $99, uh, Andre mentioned earlier about, about having park flyer type hand tosser aircraft as well, especially mm-hmm. because it's the winter now. And we have a, 90, a new 90 millimeter, sorry, a new $99, 64 millimeter class of aircraft. $100, Ooh. they're the price of a battery, right? Yeah. But, but they're small aircraft, they, they fit on a mantelpiece, stocking stuffer style. They're hand tossers, or you can put landing gear if you want on them. But they use a 3S battery between 1,000 and 2,200, that sweet spot that I know we all have. Mm-hmm. But yep. to your question, the, the challenge of designing that small aircraft was in some ways uh, greater than that big old F-14. And then on right. the other side of the spectrum, we have an aircraft like the 80-millimeter A-10 or our Flightline RC yeah. series of Warbirds. Freewing is our mm-hmm. Gen series, yeah. and Flightline is our Warbirds series. The the Flightline RC 1.6 meter wingspan Spitfire. The A10 and the Spitfire, both of those aircraft are so large, 63 and 67 inch wingspan respectively, that the foam alone in the wings wasn't strong enough. It was, oh, yeah. Yeah, we, had, we had too much flex, right? People want bigger, but mm-hmm. with bigger, you, your your forces uh, grow significantly, and so we ultimately cut to the end of the story of a year of testing. We ultimately ended up um, integrating a balsa wood, plywood, and aluminum and carbon sub wing structure into the A10. Wow! Mm-hmm. And and a, and a plywood and carbon rib structure into the Spitfire that you can't yeah. see once the aircraft's put together. If, if you held right. the bare foam up into the light, you would see that it's got ribs like a, like a balsa aircraft, like a real mm-hmm. aircraft, uh, yep. to help distribute those loads. And then again, it becomes the challenge to design the aircraft where the wing is thin enough, where it's still going to fly well, mm-hmm. but thick enough where it can take those loads and you have those components in there, and then your cost begins to creep up. And here again, we come yeah. back to finding that balance. So the challenges are unique with every aircraft, Chris, and I think that's that's what's fun. That's usually what takes so long, but that's usually what's the most fun because by the time the aircraft flies, you know that it only flies because you've overcome all of those challenges. Um, yeah. And, and and again, that's a rewarding thing after after all the kicks <laughs> from the child in the middle of the night. Have you ever had one that just <laughs> Have you ever had one that just never worked out? Absolutely. Uh, people don't know this. This may be unique for your listeners or any of our current Motion RC customers. Hey, guys. Uh, we actually <laughs> kill – I kill an aircraft every other month. Um, there are always oh, aircraft wow. in development just we're thinking and, again, trying to stay ahead of the curve and set the curve. And, and there are many aircraft that just – they can't fly – or they, they're not going to meet that nexus between all those different uh, functions we keep coming back to. In our estimation, there, there are aircraft that aren't, they're not going to stick that landing. And either we will shelve them, the A4 being a good example, shelved it for almost two years until the conditions were right, or we'll kill them altogether. It's, it's, it's more often that we'll shelve a project than we'll outright kill it, but there are certain aircraft that um, 
that we just couldn't get to fly. If someone else can get them to fly and release them, <laughs> I would love to see it happen because we try to just do the aircraft that people like and that we really like. And so some of those dead birds, I'd love to fly from someone. Um, so, you know, if anyone's looking at a Horton, please knock yourselves out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, but 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 yeah, there there are a lot of aircraft. Why are you, are you curious if some of on your want list are dead? You can ask. Uh, no, I, I I have. I don't know if I have a want list anymore. Chris Chris has been good at just influencing me and what I what, what to play with over time. But I, I it's funny how you look at them and and you didn't want them and then mm-hmm. suddenly you, like you, you want a sixty four millimeter f four for whatever crazy reason, right? You know, it's it's. It's it's funny and uh, I, recently, well, the past couple of months there, I I burned in my poor F sixteen and I looked <laughs> high and low to find a fuselage, and having that being one down on my EDF fleet is is hard. It, and it's uh, I blame the guys at the field because all of a sudden the EDFs became very popular over the summer, and that's that's where it all started to happen. But it's 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 always kind of curious and. You look at them, and and some of them you go, well, that's odd, but I get it. I get why you did that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got to be things like picking the color schemes and stuff like that. That's got to be a real hit and miss as well. You know, are you guys guys sitting in my office? I mean, that's that's exactly (laughs) (laughs) the Color schemes is a big thing. Um, To some people, I think when we we really got into this, and I've been in the hobby 25-plus years now, when 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 a lot of the hobby began to transition from from kits from Carl Goldberg type stuff, right? Just boxes. And if there's anyone out there who's doing that, more power to you. Stick with it. I am with you. <laughs> um, but as as more companies began to develop plug-and-play aircraft um, that already had decals applied, and and you weren't you weren't covering the aircraft anymore. You weren't cutting your own decals they were there for you then came the question well which one should it be and um, you're absolutely right that there would be aircraft that people would say I really love the aircraft but uh, I don't like the scheme or as often happens we'll have an aircraft then release a second scheme and suddenly it's like wildfire so what we just try (laughs) to do is and this goes not just for freewing and flight line, but for, for any of our manufacturers, manufacturing partners with whom we have influence. Uh, and we sell, we sell obviously FMS and we love the Horizon product and the list goes on. Anyone who listens, we try to say, let's choose liveries that mean something. If, if this is going to be the, yeah. the world's only F-14 Tomcat or you know, the world's only LA-7, Lavashkin LA-7, from Flightline RC, then let's pick a livery that that has historical precedent, that that has a story behind it. It's part of the narrative that that we buy into. That Motion RC is more than just a company that's selling RC toys that fly, but we, mm-hmm. we want to believe that we're selling time capsules, right? We're we're purveying the opportunity for people to reconnect with with their history, the aviation history of of this country and and of the wider world. And so we try to pick liveries that are either resonate with us or have meaningful stories or uh, a couple times they have been family members or customers of ours. Um, Colonel Bud Anderson is 
is our last living American ace. And uh, he's up in Auburn, California, and he is a wonderful man. I had the opportunity to, to meet and spend some time with him at his home a couple years ago. And we did a special edition P-51 that was dressed up in his colors, Old Crow, and oh, wow. uh, the aircraft in which he became an ace. And we sat there for hours, guys, just pouring through all these books. Wow. This man in his 90s, sharper than attack, running circles around me, circling. <laughs> and, and just he's he's pointing at these pictures of, of him sitting on this aircraft 60 years ago saying, you know, you need to move the, the, the O in O-L-D. You need to move that down a little bit. Wow. You know, just, and he's saying, look, you got the number right here, but it was smaller. And then he tells you the story of why the, there were numbers stamped on the parts on his aircraft because, because he was the ace, right? Mm-hmm. He got the special parts. And the other crew chiefs <laughs> couldn't take the parts off of his aircraft and put it onto their, their aircraft. Wow. That was his. Those were his. So hearing those stories, and, and we hope that some of that translates into when someone buys the aircraft. Maybe they would, I don't know, Google Old Crow. Yeah. We post the stories of those of those men and women on the website, on the product description. We say why we chose that livery, why we're doing those markings. Um, we talk about the people who flew the real aircraft, hoping that some young person or old person finds their way to that story and and connects with it. I get that this hobby is about having fun, but I don't think that recognizing our history uh, takes away from that fun. I think in anything it enhances it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so liveries is something that we take actually pretty seriously. We don't take it uh, flippantly in the least. We, we mull over, many 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 different reasons you know there's there's a fun thing that we do with some of the aircraft is we will let leak the project name every aircraft has a project name because if you can imagine you're making 10 aircraft a year and you're planning two years worth across various manufacturing partners there's a lot of aircraft on my plate right uh, so we have project names for each of them uh, one of them recently was was virtue it was a uh, project virtue and we sort of we leak that out on hobbysquawk.com and let people take a guess at what aircraft uh, virtue could possibly be. And then once the aircraft is released, we, we tell the story. We announce not just the aircraft, not just the product, but we explain why that product was christened Project Virtue. Project Virtue was, was named, uh, I named it after... Lieutenant Commander Stockdale. He's a Medal mm-hmm. of Honor recipient uh, who flew A-Force. Uh, Project Virtue was an A-Force Skyhawk. Commander Stockdale spent time uh, nearly eight years as a POW alongside Senator John McCain, who we all know and love. Yeah. And, and our hearts obviously go out to him at this time when he's, when he's battling cancer right now. So, so this man, uh, this man alongside a future senator and these men as POWs in the Vietnam War for years on end their story their story cannot die and their story cannot disappear from the minds of young generations um, we're committed in a very small way to make an A4 Make mm-hmm. a Skyhawk, right? Do it up in colors that people will say, I love it and I want to fly 
I want to fly an A4 and offer decal options that people can apply to the aircraft to then represent other liveries and other markings from other naval aviators who operated uh, that aircraft in that conflict and in so doing keep their history alive keep those stories alive we post the links to their wikipedia's where you can read all about lieutenant commander stockdale's contributions to this country not just in wartime but in peace thereafter and and if we had chosen if we had just painted it all white right and just guessed or just threw some nonsensical numbers up on the tail and made it look sort of fantasy cool, we would have lost that opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, I think, a good example of what we try to do with every aircraft. They all have that story to, to, to tell. And for what it's worth, for our English-speaking audience, you know, I spend a lot of my time here in Asia at, at the factories, and we communicate that as much as we can to to the people building these aircraft, to our factory workers, from from the producers and factory bosses down to the people who are gluing them together, they re they call that aircraft virtue, and nice. we talk to them about what they're doing because I I just believe that if people understand why they're doing what they're doing or that what they're doing is contributing in some larger part to a greater vision, people do their work better. And, right. and we've and we've seen that people respond and and access people open their hearts and they open their ears and they listen and that's very important from someone in my position when we're really dependent on our manufacturing partners to continue to listen to us and believe that what we're saying is representative of what our customers are saying right which is what your listeners are saying uh, when they speak to us and through uh, through our vessels we want them to to believe and 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 know that that information reaches the ears of the people who are producing these aircraft. So I hope that I hope that when we all look at the aircraft in our hangars or on our kitchen tables or wherever our wives make us put them, you know, <laughs> that when we look at them, we 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 just we see more than we see more than toys. Right. I have a, another question. I just want to see if maybe you agree with me or if I'm nuts. Uh, Andre and I have talked about this a lot also. You're you nuts, know, Chris. Uh, well, that we are, everybody has uh, found out, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. So, I, I want to say seven, eight, nine, even ten years ago, um, Alpha, I, you know, we, we had these big hobby shows, or I used to travel up to Chicago every year for the the big hobby show to see the latest and greatest and my my thing personally is i want to touch it taste it feel it look at it you know see it in person and i can't tell you how many times i might have been eh, maybe eyeing an airplane but really on the fence but until i actually seen it in person or i talked to the developer a little bit that it really intrigued me like yeah now i want that plane or how many times we've had a, re a review plane out at the field and we're flying it around we've had other pilots come up and go you know what i was didn't think much of that plane or what you know what you're flying until you know i talked to you i seen it maybe put them on the sticks and they're like you know what i really like that plane i mean i think i'm gonna go buy one and I think a little bit the the whole social media thing is it's good and it's bad for the hobby because one 
nothing secret anymore. And the second one thing comes out, it's all over the world within five seconds. But I also think it hurts it a little bit because I've noticed over the last few years, a lot of these big shows are really downsizing. Uh, there's not a lot of demo stuff going on. The shows are dwindling. And for me, I think it's hurting the hobby a little bit because these people can't, you know, always uh, see these new products and touch them and taste them and feel them and everything. Do you see any of that? Do you agree with any of that or am I just way out in left field? You know, I, I thought you were going to be in left field, Chris, but, <laughs> but I, I actually do agree with you. I think um, we've certainly noticed a constriction in attendance at, at large events. Um, <clears throat> Uh, for various reasons, the, the market shifts in certain ways, audiences change. I think there, there are various factors. There's no single one. Um, so, I, so I don't think you're off on that. I think what comes to my mind is how then do we address that? Uh, right. How do we, how do we, how do we retain access? Because I think in what you said, what is really true is, is that it's the access to the product that really excites and fires the imaginations of of boys and girls, young and old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the access to that product, I think um, if it is that the model of large-scale, uh, single-point events are, are in a period of decline, uh, one's response could either be of either of two things. One, to try and promote those events and just keep going anyway and and I don't I don't know how that could be changed the other way I think is again support your local hobby store support your mm-hmm. local club you know go to your hobby store go to your club get some guys together if you don't have a club or a hobby store and say bring all your airplanes let's see all the new stuff let's see what people have you talk to your hobby store about asking your uh, about asking their 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 factory partners. If your hobby store carries, uh, you know, Fataba radios or or some Hobbyco airplane or 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 freewing aircraft, ask your hobby store to ask the manufacturer to provide demo samples. Mm-hmm. Where you can go and touch those products. Right. And if you had a club to organize local events where people can not just touch products but talk to pilots, and I think what you said is also true to see the aircraft fly. I think, for me, one of the reasons why maybe I'm guilty here is as someone who used to attend those large events rather religiously and now haven't really been to one in over a year. Yeah, it's really because I need to I need to see the aircraft, sure, but I need to see it fly. Yes, um, I need to see it. the The hobby has advanced to the point where it's really easy to make things look good. Uh, the surfaces of foams, the 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 brightness of lights, and just you know, just the excitement that comes over any of us whenever we see an airplane, regardless of how awesome it truly is, right? Um, we just we love what we see. But I think you mentioned social media and YouTube and whatnot. I think what that do- has done for the hobby that can potentially be positive is it has grown an informed customer base. Uh, potentially, people can can walk out to a field and see an aircraft fly on at a demo and be able to see, huh? It doesn't fly slowly very well. It wants the tip. Yeah. It's tippy, or it's right. bouncy, or gosh, that paint job looks really nice, but 
but man, after after one day at the field, it's it's chipping. You know, there. Are, mm-hmm. I need to see the aircraft uh, doing what it's supposed to do. So, so I I do think in summation that you're right that there's a trend in the decline in, in these large events and, and their attendance. But I do at the same time observe that the hobby's growing. So what does that say, right? If the hobby's growing and yet attendance at these traditional big box events is probably on the decline, what's the association, what's the correlation between them? If if both were in decline, I think I'd be more worried. Yeah. It that way. Um, then we would um, be doing something wrong. I wonder if people are just finding access in a different way. Yeah. Do Do you wonder too, though, with the technology and the prices dropping on everything? I mean, you know, you you can walk into a store now and plop down 150 bucks and walk out with a ready to fly trainer, which is, I mean today it's that i mean that's crazy to me you know so i i think too that has a little bit to do with why the hobby is growing you know with the technology and, and cost going down too i believe yeah absolutely i think as as any as any market moves towards a period of of, of greater access at the ground level for its principal customer base then then the requirement of that customer base to use a conduit, i.e., you know, a big box store or a large convention, to 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 give that customer access to that product, that goes away. That requirement mm-hmm. dissipates, right? Yeah. We don't we don't we don't need. I don't need to go to to the LA Auto Show to see the latest, you know, and greatest. Car, there's a Tesla mm-hmm. dealership, you know, a block away from my house. Um, so, in the sense that people can now, in in this hobby, in many ways, as you said, walk in to a local hobby store, get a trainer, and watch some YouTube videos, call Motion RC for tech support, <laughs> have piece that thing together, and then fly and be successful. Um, yeah. The middleman, and or not just the middleman, but the role of someone to tell someone what is good and, and what to do, um, those who occupy that role, I think, are going to find that role diminishing. Yeah. I have a and I think ma- we've seen that trend as well. We've, we've, been, we've been offered to, to, to go to various events, and I love the prospect of going to Toledo, and, mm-hmm. and, and just and Toledo pops to front of mind because we've got a lot of great customers up there yeah. who, who say, come to Toledo, and we love the idea of going up there. But the investment, yeah, and yeah. again the ROI, it yeah. it becomes as a business, it becomes again it's imbalanced. Right? It's, are we really going to be able to reach a critical mass amount of customers, or just people? Mm-hmm. Are we going to be be able to make those impressions uh, that we can with that invest with that in, uh, investment? Versus being available and being a twenty four seven online store and being able to be reachable in, in any other medium. And it, it should, for anyone who, for any manufacturer or, or reseller or distributor, anyone in the business, I think, maybe listening, considering not attending large events, you know, I would say there is certainly a cost to not attending. Mm. Uh, you're going to miss out on certain customers, right? It, yeah. There's, yeah. There is something to be said for that physical touch. It cannot be fully replaced. And so, 
uh, I certainly don't want to see anyone who um, who means well in this hobby in however they engage uh, their potential customers to to have something uh, to have those opportunities uh, dwindle on them. So, like I said, if you're a ho local hobby store guy, go to your local hobby store. If you're one of those guys who loves those big events and loves to see all those new things, go and 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 make your presence known and 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 make those people's uh, those people's investment worth it. Yeah, and I've definitely found out at our little flying field here, our group. I would say eighty percent of the time somebody was not interested in a in a plane until they seen it you know got behind the sticks and and we've we've sold a lot of planes that way because people were like man i didn't even think wasn't even looking at that plane until you know you got it now i'm looking at it man thing flies great and they're yeah. like i'm gonna get one you know that happens a lot yeah. we're bad we're yeah. real bad for that <laughs> well we're we're in the same company there i think we're all a little bit like that right we're we're both the missionaries um, of of the gospel of our new airplanes, right? Mm, and oh the yes. armchair quarterbacks and detractors of anything that we don't like. We're we're all judges here, and I think for now, uh, for me as a hobbyist, and, and I think for Motion RC, we're content to watch. We're content to have those conversations play out at the local flying field. Um, we're content to have to have our word of mouth and people say. That airplane really didn't fly well. Where did you get that from? Oh, I got it from Motion. Or I love that airplane. Can I buy it off of you right now? Where did you get it from? Mm -hmm. Motion RC. You know, we're, we're happy to let those conversations play out as they do, um, because again, it feels it feels natural. I don't know. It feels more natural, don't you think? Yeah. When you're there, Chris and Andre's like, you can't fly that thing for beans. You know, let me fly it. <laughs> you just you you feel. You feel a connection to the aircraft, yeah. And I think when your buddy says you look good flying that thing, it makes yeah. you look good, right? It resonates because it's not a salesman; it's your buddy, mm -hmm. right? Um, the guy who bought you tacos, you know, when he crashed the last week. You guys made that. You know, it's those types of I think the relationships when that dovetails with the products that we buy, and uh, I think that's powerful. Yes. And also, I think let's not kid ourselves. A lot of this hobby. In my in my observation, is is about sitting with your buddies. Yes. Right? You, you go out in an Apollo. Any of my buddies from Apollo listening? Hello, I'll see you soon. Maybe never. <laughs> but you know how we do in Apollo is we show up about six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. We all set up. We all have our special table, and we set up our airplanes like there are children. <laughs> and then we sit and we talk and we yes. wait until 12 o'clock because yep. the sun's in the way, right? Wait till the sun to get behind us because you don't want a maiden when the sun's in your eyes. And then when it's like 1 o'clock after taco lunch, then someone will fly and then we'll come down and sit and talk and yes. we'll rib him about the two bounces on his landings and oh. and then we'll maybe we'll fly again. You know, so, so that's... <laughs> I think you know, like a nice, you know, one takeoff, three landings. Good job. You know, so, so I think that's part of the fun of the hobby, but also the reality, right? That that part of this, that these aircraft aren't, they're not always just going to be flown and flown and flown. They're conversation pieces. Mm -hmm. Part of this hobby is we want someone to say, "Wow, you really stuck that landing, right?" What feels better than that? We we want people to say, "I really like your airplane. Where did you get it from?" We want to share with people, oh, yeah, that's my fastest airplane, that Mirage over there, you know. 
I got it from Ocean RC. <laughs> uh, we we want to have those conversations. They they're more real, and I think they 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 mean something. Right, and that is exactly you you hit the nail right on the head. That is exactly why we started this podcast because. All of us friends and, you know, we would go out, just like you said, we would fly for maybe an hour and sit and talk for four. And I'm like, you know what? This is so much fun. You're getting your buddies <laughs> together, hanging out, like you said, you're making fun of them because they bopped the landing or, you know, they couldn't fly in or, or whatever. Tree. Yeah, went into a tree and yep. you got nicknames for everybody. And and that's exactly yep. why, you know, we started this, so we just, it, it, it's just a hangout where we, you know, we do live shows and people just come in and they hang out with us and we just talk RC. And then the other aspect was when a new product does come out and what used to frustrate me a little bit is you waited, you know, back in the day, two, four, five years ago, there might only have been three or four new new products from each company come out if that and so you waited and waited and waited and that product would come out well then you're you're digging through the forums trying to get information on it like how it flew or what the problems were or what people liked and didn't like or and then you'd hop on a YouTube video and you'd see an unboxing and then you'd see this little dot flying around in the sky and the guy's like yeah it's really great blah 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 where we wanted to dive way deeper into an aircraft like really kind of pick it apart you know from how it went together we're talking about we're talking with four or five different other people of their thoughts on it and you know the problems we had or the issues or what we liked and didn't like that was the whole reason you know behind this podcast when we started it it's a community right if it if if it was just two guys in a basement it'd be weird yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's true (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, present company accepted, but uh, but, but it, it, it's funny then because it, it snowballed, right? It snowballed for us in the fact that it's like, well, what do you think of this, and what do you think of this? So we start knocking on the manufacturer's door, saying, mm-hmm. hey, you know, we'd like to start, we'd like this dialogue, we'd mm-hmm. like to know, you know, why you did this, and, and yeah. why is this guy painted this way and stuff, and, and so our opportunity to speak with people such as yourself um, really lends well to the show and the theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the most reporting, re- rewarding part of uh, of the podcast you guys say so far? Oh man, that's I mean, is, tough. It, is it being able to speak to different people from different different parts of the hobby? Is it is it just being, you know? I think for us, Chris, I, I can it was, imagine many things. It was it was at Flight Fest where it was we were standing in this corner uh, just talking by the food vendor this year, and it was us and about two other podcast groups chatting away. And Ooh. it was like at one point we stopped and went, "Darn, this would have been a really good show." And we all laughed. Right? <laughs> no one had a microphone. No, no one had a microphone going. <laughs> and it was you know it was Gosh. things like that. And it's it's people like we get emails and. Uh, um, it was funny because I was having an iTunes issue, and uh, I, I subscribed to get results of the of the, and it was just amazing seeing uh, the comments from people saying, "Hey, thanks." You know, yeah. um, there are shows that you know Chris and I don't even know what we're going to come up with, and we just sit down and we we can banter for two hours about the hobby because the hobby is so connected these days, and there's so much Absolutely. going on. But people come back and say, "Hey, I'm a long haul driver, and I love yeah. the fact that you guys are willing to sit down twice, you know, every two weeks." and do a two-hour podcast and it's like I'm sitting there in the room with you guys in the basement mm-hmm. or at the field bench <laughs> flying you know yeah. and yeah. So that's that's why we keep going I mean that's that's why what that's our motivation our drivers that you yeah. know 
There's this connection. Y'all are NPR for the NPR for the flying man. Yeah. Or woman. <laughs> and, and it is yeah. rewarding also if we, we get a plane in or, or and a lot of times, you know, we buy a lot of products ourselves. We spend our hard earned money on it. So it's you know, we're we're since we are spending our own money, we, we wanna know about this plane or what you know, how it flies, what we didn't like. So when we really dive in deep about everything we like and, and we don't like about it, it's nice to get the emails from people and say, hey, if it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't have thought about this plane or, hey, I bought this plane because of you guys and you're right. We love it. It's a great airplane. It flies just like you said. The problems were, you know, that that to me too, I, I really enjoy that. Yeah, that's got to be the fun part. I mean, for for me, it it seems that it would be incredibly rewarding and self-affirming to sit back and listen to people from different parts of the world uh, really say almost the same thing about the hobby and relate to the hobby in in generally the same ways. Like for some reason, we're all drawn to to put aircraft in the sky and fly them yeah. <laughs> and see them. You know, we we want the personal air show and. And we, we want to see that happen, and it does something to us that uh, we like. And we all become, obviously, experts, I think, or at least we'd all like to believe so, in various things. There's the guy in my field who builds things out of straws, like hundreds of straws in saran wrap. Oh, my God. And, it, and they fly really amazingly. They fly, like, at one mile an hour. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five yeah. feet across, and just he, he makes his props out of soda bottle cans and there's that guy and then there's the other guy who only buys the expensive stuff and crashes all the time and, and we, every sort of person comes to this hobby for different reasons but I think ultimately finds we all find our way to the root which yes. is that I don't, I don't I I can't even explain it but I but I but I imagine talking about it certainly is a fun way to 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 take part in it it doesn't even really need to be named you just uh so you just talk. Here's a, here's an awesome question. If you had to pick one, if you had to pick one of your babies, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is your favorite right now? Which is my favorite right now? Favorite child. Um, hey, that's hard, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the favorite kid. Um, gosh, I ran. I got him. <laughs> you, you're going to... You're gonna make me sound so cliche when I say I love them all. Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, in in a sense, in a sense, it's always the it's always a new aircraft because yeah. I we push ourselves to to be better with every aircraft, and each aircraft, maybe not to the customer, but but to me and to our team, I think we can look at an aircraft and see we did that. A little better, but we learned from the last one. Mm-hmm. For me, there isn't so much a best aircraft as there is a favorite one. And the way my weird mind works, the favorite aircraft is the one that represents the most challenges overcome. Um, sort of gratifying in that way. And so I, I have to say that's probably the, our 80 millimeter A10. Nice. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a big aircraft on the expensive side on the scale. It's, it's not for everyone. But uh, I think it says a lot about what about what we can do. And by we, I don't mean myself. I don't mean our team or Motion RC. I mean sort of the hobby, sort of meta. But but that aircraft, in a lot of ways, was was almost crowd designed. It, it it took a 
couple of years of feedback we had listened to, just listening, before people knew we were making it, and and really trying to push the boundaries of what we could do at a given price point with all of the different things we were trying to balance. And uh, it presented a lot of challenges, but but most of what people wanted in it is was what we were able to deliver. So in that sense, it's it sort of had the highest level of difficulty to pull off. And for the most part, it's it's, it's been very successful. It's been one of our top top three sellers uh, for the past couple of years. So that one sort of stands out. Someone thinks of oh, Alpha Made Jet. It's usually the A10. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, frankly, my my favorite is is going to be coming up here shortly. Nice. Um, in a, in, a, in, a, in a few months. Yeah. Awesome. We'll, we'll jump into, yeah. into this latest recent. But on that theme, are there airplanes you look at? So I'm a video editor by by trade. So I look at some of my older stuff and go, what oh, was yeah. thinking, right? <laughs> Do you look at some of your older designs that you've had influence on and everything and go, oh, that aged really badly or po- poorly, I should say? Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah, another, I like that. Another great question. You yeah. guys are like, you guys are like a uh, question people. Right, fire today, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as I mentioned earlier, I I know and I remember because I don't forget all of the concessions we made for each aircraft. Um, I can forgive ourselves for not making certain changes because I I can look back at an aircraft and and certainly I can I can look at one and say I can look at the F five and say. Uh, if I had the influence or knew what we knew now or or whatever we want to add in there to that prepositional phrase, I would have I probably would have changed the intakes. Um, yeah, I could say that. And I could say that for, for almost all the aircraft. But I also remember that there are reasons why. And at the time, there were good reasons. Um, I think a designer, it's important, and maybe as an editor, Andre, to, to recognize that each aircraft, or each video, or whatever we're doing, is if it was the best we could have done at that time with what we had available to us, then then in the future, in hindsight, to look back at something and say, um, I would have changed that. Uh, for me, it's disingenuous because yeah. that would be that would be as if to say that I could have done better then. And we try to we try to spare ourselves that regret by by doing absolutely everything we can before a product is released, yeah. um, understanding flaws and saying, look, that's that's why it is. Sometimes um, sometimes I just need to know why something was made or why something wasn't made in a certain way, and I can sleep at night. Um, <laughs> I probably would have changed the color on the nose cone of the A6. Actually, looking back, that would have been an easy one to do. Uh, but uh, but but no. With every aircraft, there are there are there are things. Um, as long as the customer doesn't see them and think that's a disqualifier, I think we're okay. Hmm. Good stuff. I, I think we're ready to jump into our main subject. I mean, we've been talking already <laughs> for like ninety minutes, and it's been awesome. But Andre, <laughs> I got like yeah, three more questions. Three here. more questions? Yeah. Right, go for it. Go Hit for me. It. I'll, I'll give you the abridged version. Okay, one thing I wanted to touch on, um, 
I was huge into the big foam warbirds like two, three years ago when they got real popular. Absolutely love them. They look fantastic in the air. They're fun to fly, easy to fly. My biggest gripe, Alpha, was the landing gear. We don't have here a nice, long, paved Mm -hmm. runway. It's grass. It's a little bit rough. And one thing about them is the landing gear would never hold up. Or, you know, even if you grease... 10 landings after 10 landings you had to redo the whole landing gear or if you botched a landing you'd end up ripping one out uh i think the big thing was is it was fairly new to these big um foam warbirds and they were they were quite a bit heavier and you know the the landing gear technology i don't think caught up to them big airplanes what are you guys doing today with the landing gear to make it hold up better than it did two three years ago yeah, that's a that's a great question because it's it's a one we get every week. Every aircraft, we recognize that customers have access to different runways. Um, now, my answer there is is traditionally in two part. One, there's a responsibility that is the customers to operate the aircraft on in conditions that it's made for. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't take the Ferrari I'll never own. <laughs> And, <laughs> and and take it off roading. Mm-hmm. You know, it it wasn't built for that. If 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 I were to take my my big crawler, which I'll never own, <laughs> and take it onto the racetrack and say I'm getting really bad miles per gallon, it's not the fault of the of the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not ideal for those conditions. So the reason why I think a lot of the larger foam aircraft. Uh, were and continue to be popular is because the other com- fact of the matter is that a lot of people don't have access to paved runways or perfectly manicured grass. We sort of need to fly them where we can. Mm-hmm. Um, there, though, there's there's this unavoidable wall in that if the aircraft is smaller than 44 inches wingspan or so, the wheels on that aircraft are going to be an inch and a half tall. Yeah. Unless you want, you know, some Mickey Mouse P-51 Mustang (laughs) with wheels that are four inches tall and thus way too thick to fit into Mm -hmm. the wings, right? Something's got to give physically, dimensionally. And so the natural idea is to make them bigger. As you said, though, when we go bigger, the aircraft get heavier. And so... um, so, so now you're going to be taking more forces. I, I'm, I'm always fond of saying that we can't change physics. It's just yeah. if you hit the aircraft at a certain, everything is designed for a certain point. Steel has a failure point. That steel pin in the trunnion of a retract, definitely. Yeah. You know, it's it's thicker. It's five millimeters than three and a half or four. Um, it's heat treated now instead of that soft and yield stuff that we used to use, that everyone used to use. So it's certainly designed to take more load, but a pilot will always be able to exert more load on a foam aircraft than the foam aircraft can be designed to fit. It's just guilty. It's, yeah. it's, guilty it's physics, right? Um, so, so to answer your question more directly, what we've tried to do, understanding that there is no bulletproof mechanism, right? My... My 50-pound turbine with big old retracts and suspension struts and it's into a carbon plate, breakaway plate. If I hit that thing hard enough, it's tearing the wing off. Sure. Period. That's, you know, it's just physics. Mm-hmm. Recognizing um, recognizing that there's that physics barrier 
for all of us. The key to the key to addressing that, I think, is addressing all of the points along that spectrum. So that begins with the wing loading of an aircraft. Um, it comes back to we talk about balance, right? Scale fidelity is usually means plastic. Usually translates to you want more plastic mm-hmm. on it. Plastic gun ports, plastic cockpit decals, uh, details, plastic exhaust stacks. People want more plastic doors. You want more plastic. Plastic's heavy. Yes. There's a balance between overloading an aircraft and making it look absolutely beautiful, but now the wing loading is above a certain point where it's going to put more stress on the retracts. So we try to design aircraft which are which are reasonably wing loaded, where they'll still penetrate in the wind. And in this case, I'm talking really about warbirds to to your directly to you in the context of your question. But for a warbird, we want it to to be able to penetrate. And not be blown around. It should fly like and sit in the air like a warbird, um, and and also have flaps and those types of things where the aircraft can come down and 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 be able to fly as slow as possible to reduce that initial jam into your grass, however tall it may be. Then, of course, we try to upsize wheels as much as we can. The limit on that is obviously the thickness of the wing. We can only make them so large. Almost all of our aircraft, if you really want to get super scale nut uh, on the fidelity aspect, they all have oversized wheels, over in thickness and over in height, just because we try to make them as big as we can before making them look cartoonish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, because obviously the bigger they are, you you have less rolling resistance. And then we get into suspension struts. So our first real big aircraft, our 1.6 millimeter meter single Spitfire from Flightline RC, that aircraft comes stock with suspension struts. Um, The suspension struts obviously designed to absorb some of that initial impact. And then we work further up the chain from the wing loading to the wheel compression itself to the suspension strut and the depth and rebound of that spring. Um, if it's too thick or if it's too soft, obviously the attributes are, are, are different. And we work our way up into the trunnion and the, and the thickness of the pin which joins the strut, the landing gear leg, to the trunnion, which is the rotating part of the retract. Uh, we make that as thick as possible and as long as possible. And then from the retract mount itself, that then is bolted into a plastic receiver. We don't just glue the retract into the foam, but it's glued into a plastic receiver case that enshrouds the entire retract, plus uh, adequate footage around the retract. And then, of course, the plastic itself is designed with grooves in it that mate into the foam with glue. Now, in all of that line, we still need to design failure points. Mm-hmm. It'd be irresponsible, right? If if we built a bulletproof wheel and, and suspension yeah. system and epoxied it to the main wing spar of of the wing, then again, yeah. physics. Right, right. <laughs> you know that force needs to go somewhere. Yep. It's going to crack your wing yep. spar. It's going to rip your wing off. So something's got to give, right? Um, we try to. We've been testing in the past year. The uh, Spitfire was a good example. We had a customer who, whose wheels, uh, whose wheel uh, mounts, his plastic retract mounts came off on landing. He, we weren't there. He said it was a, it was a good enough landing on a reasonable enough surface. It came off. So that actually triggers, which is okay. Nothing's going to be perfect. 
I would rather us be known for our responsiveness to issues and our transparency of how we resolve them than to hide from them or deny that they ever happen. So, so we took that in and we were able to you know, launch a full investigation as to who was gluing that day yep. and how much glue and we re-standardized the type of glue and the setting a time for that glue and the amount and the weight of glue that is used per joint and finding that sweet spot. Again, they're still designed to break away. Yeah. Because we, you would rather the whole uh, retract mount pop out, you just glue it back on, than it to rip the foam out of the yes. Then you've got a problem. Um, but again, finding that balance. How much is enough for a reasonable nice. amount of, of, of force? And I think it comes back to an understanding of uh, of what I what I like to talk about, the Venn diagram, right? You've, you have these overlapping uh, initiatives and these overlapping concerns and it's really where they all overlap, that center point of that Venn diagram that we're really most concerned about. We've accepted that a product won't be perfect. Grass is a widely subjective term. We're never going to be able to de design anything that's perfect in every condition. But it's trying to find that balance which is reasonable for the majority. And I think the more product, the more feedback, the more responsiveness, the more that loop and longer that loop plays out, the more we're able to hone that with each new aircraft. Um, taking what it can do and how it wants to be flown, adequate and, re and responsible wing loading, and then a reasonable amount of, 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 of force and, and mechanism to dissipate that force along, uh, along the entire train from the ground to the wing route. Wow, that was... That was a that was a that was a short wow, answer. That was fantastic. I mean, I mean, I feel awesome. so much better after this. That was no, that was fantastic. I mean, that even something as simple as just a landing gear, like you just talked about for I don't know five minutes, but the intricate details of what goes in, like you you know, hey, the the glue we didn't have enough glue, or you know, we got to add a little bit more. I mean that. That's crazy. I, I just hope people really understand and grasp, you know, what you guys do and go through just for just I, I asked a simple question on landing gear. You know, why are this landing gear keep popping out? But that's amazing. <laughs> that really is. Which leads me into the next question. Foam technology. I'm sorry, I just want to keep going. Foam technology. Um <laughs> We were just talking about two, three years ago, the big warbirds and how they're heavy and, you know, the bigger they get, the, you know, uh, the heavier they are with the foam. Where do you see the foam technology right now? Are we kind of peaked out or do you see in a year or two years or something it's going to get a lot better? I know some companies are already, you know, kind of experimenting with the the hollow core foam, you know, making the, the bigger airplanes lighter and fly better. So where are we sure. in the foam technology? Yeah, great question. I think the foam itself, it's important to realize that that brand names aside, foam is, is, is foam. Um, differences in weight of foam, we call it bay, mm -hmm. so 35 bay or 40 bay, the, the, the higher the number, the different weight it is, and the different properties it has. Um, other than those differences, foam is foam. The, the innovations will come from the engineering side. So, so when you're talking about making a mold of a of a solid wing, for example, versus which is what a lot of the 1.7 meter wingspan foam warbirds were a couple years ago, to now making a hollow two-piece wing that had that is molded to accept 
plywood mm-hmm. ribs and a carbon spar like the 1.6 meter flight line Spitfire is um, that wasn't a difference or a change in the foam the foam is still the same but it's in the mold making and the engineering mm-hmm. um, it takes a lot more time certainly to draw as you can imagine the external surface of the wing versus figuring out the insides of it then we get into the minutia of mold yeah. making which many industries are, are familiar with obviously everything to all of our listeners, look around you in your room or wherever you're at right now and count how many things are made with a mold. Anything plastic, most things metal, you know, gosh, a lot of wood fiber composite products these days. Mm-hmm. Certainly your, your shoes and your watch and your phone, these things are made with molds. Um, innovations and reductions in cost of mold making and all that's, that's under that category, I think will really be able to drive differences in in, uh, in in what the customer sees in the hobby. And the good news, I think, is that a lot of the innovations I'm talking about, uh, you, you say hollow molding or, or thin wall type molding mm-hmm. and, and, and integral lattice structures, those types of things are, are, in, are, are already in use with many other industrial mm-hmm. products. It's just the question is if and when and who is going to bring those ideas and that skill set into into something like foam. I think foam as a medium isn't going anywhere. Right. I'm, I'm a big balsa guy. I came from balsa. I came from sticks. You know, I, I still build sticks even when I'm on the road just because that's where my heart is. But as a medium, foam is so versatile and easy to fix yes. and yeah. easy to mass produce and convenient when you talk about walking into a store talking to the nice local hobby store owner and walking out with a trainer that you and your son or daughter can go and fly that afternoon and fly successfully um, for as much as I love balsa balsa can't do that and so there, I think there will always be a place for foam like any trend or like any new technology or medium, there will be there will be a settling point. I don't think we're there yet. We certainly observe an expansion in sort of people who accept foam, people who want to see foam, people, as you mentioned, who want to see it in bigger sizes. It wasn't, I think a few years ago, foam was relegated to EPS type foam products, which are sort of that oh, beer cooler yes. foam, right? When people think yes. foam, they think EPS. For any of your listeners who maybe are new to the foam side of the hobby, when I say metal and I say copper and steel, you understand that those are both metals, but their properties are vastly yes. different from each other. In the same way, EPS and EPO foams are both foams, right? But they're but they're very, very different. And so what we've seen is a is a progression from older types of foams and I think into the modern foam and the modern way of dealing with that foam because now we understand it right we understand how hot the mold needs to be uh, and how much pressure for how long to be able to get the mold to flow into all of these crevices and not burn and not undercook and make bubbles oh, in the, the, the entire field of of, of foam molding and uh, foam molding I think is becoming better and better um, and people whereas a few years ago maybe said foam is only for small EPS beer cooler foam toys no. are now <laughs> there are people out there flying you know I want to see something bigger and yes. faster I think the e-flight t28 mm-hmm. 
that came out a year and a half or so ago whenever it did you know a 1980 millimeter almost two meter yep. Yep. foam yep. aircraft and 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 I've got two <laughs> fly yes. amazing and, and you know and people just a lot of the people at our field and when I travel and see uh, other flying fields a lot of the guys who said I would never fly foam they're all flying on T28. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of turbine guys saying I would never fly foam. They're all flying Avantis this summer. Yeah. Um they're all flying that free wing Avanti to warm up first thing in the morning. You know what I'm talking about. You're a little afraid <laughs> to take ten thousand dollars in the sky, you fly yeah. the me. And so the acceptance of the market for the medium of foam has certainly widened its arms and that I think will only uh, continue to feed the desire for it, uh, and I, and I think I hope a standardization on on a new level, a new plane, see what mm-hmm. I have? on a new yep. plane of 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 quality of sort of surface tension, uh, of surface hardness and smoothness, and all these types of qualities that um, maybe for the past couple of years have been premium. We'd like to see those become sort of the new the new normal. Which I think is exciting for anyone who flies foam and and anyone who's in, who's invested in the hobby or interested in getting into it because as fancy as foam will always be, it'll always glue way better oh, yeah. than a bag of splinters out in the field. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, you you brought up a really good point, and I, geez, I keep coming up with these questions. Um, because you were just talking about flying the the E Flight Carbon Z um, T twenty eight, but. When it say a company comes out with whether it's new foam or a new type of technology, do you do you guys buy that product and dissect it and look at it and see what they did, or is it just kind of well known being in the industry? You've already heard about it or knew about it or something, or do you or no? Yeah, you know, so we're we're privileged in the sense that we sell all the major brands. And suffice to say, I've tested a lot of brands. We're we're known for only selling what we fly and mm-hmm. what we test. So a lot of my time is 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 testing and not just testing to see how it flies and have fun, but really scrutinizing and evaluating all it's so many different factors of the aircraft and its progeny and how it's produced and quality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we frankly see a lot of what's coming and what we really believe in. We right. sell. We we sell we sell all the big brands because we really believe yeah. in them. Um, unfortunately, nothing really, nothing's really surprised me mm-hmm. recently, because uh, being here in Asia, as you can imagine, right. I, I do see a lot of things, especially behind the scenes. It's a small community. This, despite what some people may read online or 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 are apt to think, we a lot of us know each other. That's <laughs> what I figured. Yeah, certainly on the production side, yeah. you know. There, there are there are very important reasons for for confidentiality and for product separation and um, and for competitive reasons. Motion RC sells a lot of brands which, on the surface, are competitors. You know, so so there is a responsibility there to keep things separate where they should be separate. Mm-hmm. But on the personal level, you know, we fly, we we yep. talk, we see, we we know, and. Um, in that way, it's sort of familial, I think, in in the Asian in the, in the Asian industry. There's a bad side of that, I'd say, because there's some you know, there's some copying, yep. there's some there's some of that, some of that happens. But I think um, 
I mean, look, I think from MotionRC's point of view and my point of view, not just as a part of MotionRC, but just as a hobbyist, my interest, uh, frankly, I could care less about the politics that go on behind the scenes. I'm concerned when I go and spend my hard-earned money, because I pay full price for these things right. too, right? When I spend my money for for something, I just want to know that it's good and it's yeah. the best that it can be. Um, that's all I really care about. I think that's all anyone really cares about. If you imagine, has there ever been a podcast about the engineers behind the iPhone? Like, they don't talk about all <laughs> no. the... Uh, yep. All the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs, and you know, just because, because Frank, I think that would be a lot more boring than our <laughs> right. conversation. Because those customers, they just, they just want yes. it to be yeah. good. They just want to spend their thousand dollars for that iPhone, and they just want to know it's the best thousand bucks they've ever yeah. spent. And so we try to focus on that. Um, sure, I mean, a lot of new ideas and technologies come across my desk, which are exciting. Um, but I think the responsibility that we take very seriously comes back to just because it's cool, just because it has promise, doesn't mean it can deliver what we need to deliver to our customers today. And it's keeping things to that standard and waiting until they meet that standard that then we carry them. That I think customers see that. I think that's what I'm interested in doing as, as a person. <laughs> um, and I think people recognize that, and that that pays off. Uh, that pays off in future. Runcam is sort of a neat uh, camera company. Everyone I think yes. knows Runcam by now. They're 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 like the best in FPV. We haven't sold them. They've been around for for a while now. We only just began carrying them mm -hmm. this summer. And a lot of that is because we were just watching and waiting and, and observing and learning. Um, people always ask me, "What are you going to make next?" So I'm going to make everything. <laughs> As long as we're in business, we're going to yeah. make everything. You know, what's coming next? Everything that's good yeah. is coming. It's not a facetious answer. It's true. You know, have you seen this? <laughs> yes, we have. Yeah. When are you going to sell it? Well, when it hits all those criteria, we'll yeah. sell it. And once we do, I think sometimes we're behind the ball. People are like, finally, you're selling Runcan, and, and they love it, and that's great. Um, but we need to know that those internal checks and balances have been satisfied. Yeah. You know, we need to... We need to uh, to keep that bargain, that that pact with our. Hmm. Can you get stock? Is the stock as good? Is it reliable? All those factors that that Absolutely. impact on you, right? Oh yeah. So, supply, access, uh, warranty process, uh, warranty procedures, um, and the quality of the product, uh, remediation. There are just so many things yeah. that are again, maybe maybe boring to some, but it's standard for any business. You've got to make sure that supply chain is clear. And maybe I think. Um, as as someone who has personal friends who run local hobby stores, you know, part of the reality is sometimes for some of those guys, if you're if you're Pegasus or Smith Brothers out there in, in Van Nuys, California, you have the assets and the wherewithal to be able to to push and keep uh, keep your suppliers honest, right, and push for change and push for innovations. Um, there are other local hobby stores I think that are they don't have the bandwidth to be able to get those changes, so it's it's difficult. It's it's tough, right? Um, so we're, we're sensitive, I think, to that as well as being because we have the opportunity to 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 get out in front, right, and to and to make those commitments and to deliver on them. We we try to we try to do them whenever right. possible. 
Okay, one quick last question. <laughs> because I, 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 I want you to either talk about this or put the, maybe this rumor to rest because um, what I'd like to know is, do you guys run into any problems when you go to make a plane as far as licensing fees? And the reason I'm asking this was, is I talked oh, to yes. A, yes. a product developer a while back about a P-38, and he says, you know what, we're not going to do that plane anymore because Lockheed wanted too much money. And I didn't know if it was true, if he was just blowing smoke up where the sun don't shine, but is that a problem you guys ever run into? <laughs> You know, it's certainly a challenge uh, and an opportunity. I would say uh, Motion RC is very proud to be Northrop Grumman's, uh, to use them as an example, to be Northrop Grumman's you know, officially licensed model maker. We, all of our Grumman aircraft wear mm-hmm. that seal. Um, I think uh, to call it a problem, I, I, it certainly costs, and I don't think maybe customers recognize that. We've talked about some of this online um, uh, Tom, one of the one of the co-owners, has addressed this on on forums because it's a valid question. People just want to know why don't we see more aircraft from this particular uh, uh, right. manufacturer, original full-size manufacturer? It's a it's a valid question. We get it, but it's also I think an opportunity when we were able to sit down with Northrop Grumman and say, look, there's there's Tom, Dick, and Harry in China. Their name's probably Tom, <laughs> right. but you know, there are there are people, as the stereotype goes, all around the world who are taking pictures of aircraft or of any product, right, and copying it and making it look like that aircraft or look like that cell phone or look like that Nike shoe or whatever the case may be, and there are customers who will pay for those goods, um, and that's all well and good. That's that's up to them. But for us, if given the opportunity to say, we want to meet you face to face, we want to we want to negotiate for something that's reasonable, but also be able to tell our customers, look, uh, this is an officially licensed product. We believe that for a lot of our customer base, again, I say this knowing people who are either currently working with Lockheed <laughs> or they're working, you know, or they have, you know, Customers of ours who 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 are part of that industry, for them it resonates when they see that the model that they fly on the weekend is licensed by the company that pays their that mm. they work for on the weekdays. Um, so I think it's a reflection I think of of our customers either expectation or or their acquiescence that we're we're proud to be licensed model makers where possible. Um, certainly there are. There are some aircraft that we'd like to make, and when we talk about considerations, uh, it isn't just about wing loading and Reynolds numbers. It, it is about licensing and access, and uh, and that's really up to those who hold those licenses. Um, it's yeah, it's it's really up to them, and we hope. I think I go on record on saying that we hope that that any licensee. Any licensor with whom we cooperate or with whom we'd seek to cooperate would recognize that we, and in this, I'm not talking about myself or Motion RC, but again, we as yes. the hobby in general, that, that, yeah, that we as the hobbyist, as the worldwide hobbyist, um, pretty sure we mean no harm. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, 
I really believe that um, I really believe that seeing an aircraft in the air that hasn't flown for five years or yeah. fifty years, seeing an aircraft seen having seen an aircraft in the air again, I think is powerful because I think um, with all due respect to all the aircraft that are in that are sitting on poles in in Air Force bases and <laughs> installations throughout the world, an aircraft's real yeah. place. Yeah, no here. kidding, right? Whether some whether there's a human being in it, or it's made out of 3D uh, profile foam or cardboard or a piece of paper or carbon fiber, whether someone's sitting in it or it's being controlled from the ground, it an aircraft needs to be in the air. And I think the more aircraft that are in the air, the better. And I think especially if they are historical aircraft, you talk about the P-38. Uh, have a P-38 in the air, uh, which is officially licensed, uh, ours is, to, to have that aircraft in the air, again, um, is far more valuable than I think um, not having it in the air would be. Right. Oh, I totally agree. Totally agree. All right. Enough with the questions, Chris. I'm done. Uh, even though we've been talking for two hours now, running through anything imaginable, um, our, one of our main reasons why we have Alpha Enos on the show is he has a brand new product coming out very soon. We're very excited. We've seen a few pictures and he's talked about it a little bit. So if you're hearing this podcast, uh, you know, we're recording it now, but we're going to put it out later when uh, they announce the airplane. So Alpha, the floor is yours. Please tell us. And from my understanding, this is a first of its kind also. So I'm really excited about that. So Alpha, tell us about this new product. What's coming out? So this is, in fact, the worldwide podcast exclusive. <laughs> Heck yeah! Of of our latest aircraft. Heck yeah! Of our latest aircraft from uh, from Flightline RC. So we've been talking a lot about Freewing, which we work with for our EDF jets. Freewing being just one of the many manufacturing partners that we work with. Flightline is a brand within a brand, in the same way that eFlight is a brand, mm-hmm. Markzone is a brand within Horizon Hobby. People are sort of used to that relationship. Uh, Flightline RC is a brand within Freewing that's all Warbirds. And we launched the Flightline line about two years ago with a series of 1.2 meter wingspan single engine aircraft. The idea behind Flightline being to either be aircraft that have never been done before, uh, or I think that haven't really been done in the modern mm-hmm. foam way. So we started with an LA-7, uh, a Sea Fury, a Spitfire Mark IX in the smaller size. We went up to the Bearcat, which is really exciting for yes. a lot of people. And then we had a TA-152, which, again, had never been done in in, uh, in foam. We had, of course, the P-38, a big 1.6-meter wingspan P-38, which I oh, was really excited about a couple of years ago and, and followed that up. Yeah, one of my faves. And we followed that up last year with, uh, with another twin, a 1.6-meter uh, F7F mm-hmm. Tiger Cat, also never right. done before at the time. All of those aircraft, by the way, using roughly the same 4S3000 battery, and the twins use two each. So talking about standardizing battery across a series, there's an, air, there's an example of seven, eight different aircraft from 1.2 to 1.6 meter wingspan from a single engine to twins that all use the same battery. Well, now we've begun to 
we started with singles. We had the twins. The market is now making a couple other twins out there. So we've decided to sort of change things up. And we are now introducing a 2,000 millimeter wingspan class. So a two meter wingspan class. Um, it instantly becomes our largest uh, aircraft that we sell out of 400 or so different aircraft on our website. It instantly becomes our largest aircraft with, with retracts, uh, not counting our gliders. But it's a 2,000 millimeter wingspan class. It is now also a four-engine class, <laughs> and I'm beating around the, yep. bush, the bush here. But what we saw, uh, getting to the top of our conversation, what we saw was that trend of people saying, I like the singles, the fighters are cool, the, the twins are really great, but what about wow. the bombers? So it has been several years since uh, since the, the popular Hobby King 1875-millimeter mm -hmm. B-17. Freewing has a 1.6 meter wingspan B-17, um, and and those are fun. There's there's a lot of those. A great friend of mine, Tony Accurso, uh, flies the flies out of Apollo and operates the Warbird Squadron there, and they fly 10 to 12 to 13 of these oh. B-17s, uh, flying formation all together. Wow. It's really fun. Unfortunately, you don't get as many crashes as you sort of think and hope, but, but you know, everyone gets up and comes down at the same time. But for, for those guys, as our love letter to those guys love flying the big heavies, Motion RC is proud to announce the world's first B-24 Lancaster. Liberator. Liberator. I was going to say, wait a minute. Liberator. Should I start that again? <laughs> that's for the that's for the guys paying, really paying attention to what I'm saying. Uh, a B-24 Liberator. Uh, so this is going to be the world's first B-24 Liberator. That's two-meter wingspan, four engines, of course. It has never been done in foam plug-and-play. It's very rare even in wood. One of the guys at our field flies a, a wood kit mm -hmm. he put together. But because of those four engines, and it was, it's a nitro bird, it, it, they don't really play nice, right. right? But we've been able to bring this aircraft now to, to announce a new bomber series from Flightland RC. And the neat thing I think about this aircraft is it follows in the tradition of what we've established with Flightline RC. All of the aircraft that we've developed have very similar properties. Four cell, 3,000 uh, milliamp battery. In this case, this aircraft uses two of them. Um, it has removable wings, so two screws can pop either wing off completely. There's a central wiring harness in the center that allows all of the wires to be consolidated into six outputs for your receiver. So your flaps, uh, your retracts, and your uh, all your other surfaces are all combined. So basically you can take this large aircraft and in about two minutes take the wings off and put the entire aircraft uh, in the front of a standard wow. sedan. Wow, did you hear that, Andre? <laughs> I did, I did, I did. <laughs> It'll fit in your car. So for Andre, look... It'll fit in your car. It's super important, right? Everyone loves bigger. Bigger flies better. But they need to put yes. it in their cars without taking 20 minutes, 30 minutes to take them apart. And so what we really went to task with was to make the aircraft, the entire thing goes together with 12 screws. You just have screws. There's no glue required for the primary assembly of the, of the actual aircraft. The only thing you're going to be gluing on are antennas mm. and pitot tubes. And I think uh, if making the world's first B-24 Liberator wasn't enough, and if making it 
one of the largest foam bombers wasn't enough. Uh, we are also trying to make it really, frankly, the coolest and most easy to play with uh, Warbird in our series. And the reason and how we've done that is we've taken the aircraft and all of its turrets are able to oh, move. Wow. The upper turret is able to move. The waist uh, gun areas, they're actually uh, unfinished. The, the window plates are left unglued so that an owner could conceivably stick a fat shark camera in mm. there or uh, FPV gear or further detail out the inside and then oh, wow. close it all up. And what I really like is we're offering two different color schemes just like we did with the P-38. We're doing an olive drab ver version, green on top, gray on bottom, and then an all silver version. Uh, both of those aircraft, if you pick the green one and open it up, inside the box we're including two magnetic nose cones. And this is the history buff in me. We really try to promote, as I said earlier, different liveries, different markings for different periods in different theaters. For the B-24, uh, we, we offer these magnetic nose cones, and one is for the D version, the Delta version, which is, for those familiar with the B-24 Liberator, uh, it is the smooth greenhouse nose, the earlier version. And then we're also including a magnetic nose cone that, that represents the Juliet version, which is the later version with the Emerson uh, turret. Sort of, there's a spinning turret on the front end of it with the bombardier site relocated to the bottom. So the way we've designed the fuselage of the aircraft is you can walk up to the aircraft, wrap your hand around the D nose, pop it off, take the J nose and pop it on, and now your aircraft is a J. Um, for the scale nuts, of course, there are a couple of window placements in this, and a couple of other small things that were changed in during the war. But for most of us, we'll be able to recognize that's a J with a nose turret, that's a D. And we're really excited because the upper turret on the fuselage and that nose turret on the J version, they're specifically designed to house FPV oh, wow. cameras. <laughs> um, the, yeah. yeah. The the J version is the J version has a swiveling turret. It comes pre-installed with a tiller arm. All someone needs to do if they want to make that that turret pivot is add a nine gram servo into a pre-molded spot. It's right there. There's no cutting. There's no hacking. There's no measuring. There's no re-gluing involved. Um, you just push the servo in, attach it to the tiller, and and Y harness it into a, wow. a control surface or a radio channel, and now you can now you can pan that turret. We also selected a special uh, type of plastic for the turret, where it's basically it's as clear as optical clear as you can get with this thickness. So we've tested it in flight, and you can have that FPV camera looking out the turret, and it has the glazing, and it has the 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 strapping, the metal strapping that frames the turret itself, and it feels as if you're sitting in a B24J's nose turret. Um, so it's those types of, I think, play aspects, right, that we want to bring the FPV aspect, the customization aspect uh, to the model, recognizing that we really, again, believe these aircraft are their, their time capsules. We've even done a couple of neat things to the inside of the aircraft. Um, one of the things I'm really proud about is 
we know that for bombers, certainly on my old B-17, I hacked up the bottom to be able to stick in some <laughs> some bombs from atombomb.com and be able to drop those. So doing so tip usually weakens the fuselage yeah. of an aircraft, right? They're using <laughs> model foam aircraft usually aren't designed to have <laughs> their center chests <laughs> right. cut out of them. Um, but with the B-24, we anticipated that people will probably want to cut the doors along the panel lines and open those up oh, for wow. functioning doors. So what we did was we reinforced the center spine of that aircraft with a sheet of plywood uh, glued into the foam spine to basically preemptively reinforce the aircraft. If you never cut into it and just fly the aircraft out of the box, fantastic. You, you have an extra robust fuselage. But if you did decide one day to slice into those doors and hinge them, you can do so with the confidence knowing that the aircraft itself is is already reinforced for that operation to occur. You can cut where you normally would and not need to think, well, how do I add carbon yeah. and epoxy and weight to this aircraft? So we've taken a lot of the guesswork out for DIYers who want to throw cameras in there, bomb gear, and, and other types of things while trying to deliver as historically accurate a presentation of the B-24 Lancaster as we could. Uh, and then on top of all that, we've also been very, very. I need to. I need to give a shout out to the Collings Foundation. We've been very, very privileged to work with the Collings Foundation and Hunter Cheney specifically to uh, to pattern our aircraft, our model, after the Collings Foundation's B-24. Now, for your listeners not familiar, the Collings Foundation is a nonprofit educational foundation uh, up in Connecticut. And they own and fly the last uh, B-24J wow. in the world. There are two B-24 uh, Liberators still flying, and and the J is is owned by the Collings Foundation. So we've been very privileged to work with them and communicate with them, and we're very proud to feature as uh, as the titular decal set for the B-24 Liberator from Flightline RC. The witchcraft decal set. So when you open up that green uh, B-24, you'll have a decal set for a Delta version of the B-24 and also the Juliet version of the B-24. And the Juliet version is going to be the witchcraft. So any of your listeners, if you Google B-24 witchcraft, you're going to see that aircraft that, that flies and tours around the country. And they use it for educational purposes to inspire a new generation of flight and obviously educate uh, the, the new generations about what our country went through and what the world went through in that massive conflict. Um, the veterans of which are dying every day, and we feel very strongly the, the time is now to promote and relive their stories and and our our partnering with the Collings Foundation and releasing this aircraft with their stamp of approval is one of those efforts that we're, we've been involved in. And for those purchasing a silver B-24, they will also have a different decal set representing a, a different Delta version and a different Juliet version. Um, and then finally, on top of all of that, we are also partnering with Cali Oh, yeah, Graphics, we know Cali. Yep. Another good friend of ours. Oh, yeah. You guys know yep. Cali, right? A lot of your listeners will probably know Cali. Good old Cali down in, in, in New Mexico. Cali Graphics, uh, she has been a friend of, us, of ours for years, personal friend of mine. And we've been very privileged to work with her over the past couple of years with all of our new releases. We give her, she's probably one of the first people on the continent 
to learn about some of the new things that I've got cooking. <laughs> and and she has prepared a lot of different decal wow. sets uh, that people will notable ones through history and also some of the more um, uh, unknown uh, markings, but ones we still think deserve uh, their stories to be told. So those will be available on her website as well. All that's going to be available at the same time that the aircraft is available, which is, uh, drumroll, we're going to be announcing the aircraft when this podcast is going live, uh, the weekend of Thanksgiving in 2017. So, so this is an aircraft that is that has already shipped and is actually physically already on its way oh, to the nice. United States. One of the things we really try to do is, is, is I believe the key to happiness is managed expectations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we don't want to we don't want to announce something, especially when it's the holiday season, and say here it is, yes, it's coming right. in April. So th- this is an aircraft we we have waited and kept everyone quiet until it has already shipped. So me speaking to you now, it, it shipped a nice. week ago. And we know that it's already physically on its way to arrive here at, at the end of this year, and the pre-order will be available. So, so that's our that's our big secret with the B24. And, gosh, I keep saying this, but on top of all that, the B24 is also the first of our aircraft when we're talking about another series staying ahead of the curve and, and setting the curve. Yeah, there's another series. Uh, the B24 is going to be the first of our flightline aircraft. Uh, first of its size, first of being a four-engine, but but the first of, of any of our aircraft that out of the box we are designing a variety of 3D printable detail upgrade parts. So we recognize that maybe some of your listeners have 3D printing machines. Andre, yes, I know you've got one. Um, and there are some companies out there going doing really innovative work with providing 3D printable aircraft. Flight Test has done mm-hmm. some features on them, and we're big fans of, of their work. We believe that there are people out there who, who can bring that technology forward. And so part of what we're trying to do is, is, is at the manufacturer level now, make that 3D printing uh, sort of a thing. So what we're doing is... And our and all your viewers are of course encouraged to, to check out our website at motionrhc.com slash b24. You'll see the product page with all the stuff we're talking about, and you'll be able to see pictures of, of this 3D idea. And what that entails is we will be providing a design from the factory so you know everything fits. Uh, the same team of us who designed the aircraft itself are designing 3D printable upgrade parts. So if you've ever wanted, if you've ever wanted uh, more scale instrument panels that don't you know, bubble up in the sun, or you wanted, let's say you really like that turret, but you want a full, you want a full turret internals, or you really like that that Bombay window that we did, but you really want the bomb site, you really want that Norden to be visible. Um, Actually, did it use a Norden? Let's check my facts. But you really want that that bomb site visible uh, inside your aircraft. Well, those are things that our engineers have prepared, and we will be making available for download on our website. We're going to be starting with uh, with the cockpit interior, which is a full sort of tub seats and steering yokes and instrument panel sets. Um, and in addition, in the future, if if it sort of takes hold, we're going to be actually stocking these because we know not mm-hmm. all of us have 3D printers yet, but we sort of want to try it out. So we're going to have factory printed 3D uh, 3D printed and designed 
parts that drop right in to take your foam aircraft sort of to the next detail level. When we talk about scaling out, right? Um, so a lot of that's going to come, I think, from 3D printing. And, and I'm happy to say Motions RC is, we're the first. Pretty sure. I would... right? Are we the first? I think we're the first to make that available in a plug-and-play aircraft. Factory yeah. available, download, and pre-printed uh, plug-in detail parts. So that's that's something we sort of took ownership of late in, late in the development process. But again, it goes to the theme of what we want this aircraft to be, which is we don't want it to carry weapons. We want it to carry history. We want it to carry sort of fun. We want it to carry the, the ideas and the DIY uh, instincts in all of us to tinker and to take out that airbrush, take out that camera, rewire those turrets, you know, scratch build a little bit inside the visible spaces, and and make your model make yeah. your model yours. We're, so. we're kind of privileged here because we got an advanced look of some of these photos. And what struck me right away, because uh, um, Alpha sent me some some aerial photos this morning, was the the interior green, that that hyper green, and how it jumps out when you're looking at it from the air is just incredible. Yeah, the the what we go through to to make those additional colors. Um, it just it takes a long time <laughs> for you, but every additional color when you look at an aircraft is an additional color mask. So there's there's on the green version there's white, red, uh, green, black, gray, and then the interior green. Right? There's seven different painted colors on that aircraft. So there's seven different paint masks and paint molds as we call them um, that are these big contraptions you're able to hold over the foam and when firmly pressed they'd mask off the other areas. So when we're talking about the production to be able to develop, not just develop an aircraft like this that flies well, but that also presents well and, and looks the part, um, that isn't using decals for all the different colors, but it's actual paint, um, you know, it's a lot of work. But as I keep saying, oh, wow, it's, it's it. <laughs> our work. Exactly, the wow is worth it, and our work certainly pales in comparison to the work that the Collings Foundation is doing to keep the B-24 witchcraft flying to this day, and 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 more so, even more so, the sacrifices of the men and women who operated these aircraft in wartime. So, um, so we're happy to do our small part. One of my questions is, um, for since you you got four engines, how did you do the rotation? Is one side counter rotating the other one reg, you know regular clockwise uh, counterclockwise or yes okay yeah they actually uh, in falling with our p38 and the f7f the b24's props are counter rotating you know for the for the scale nuts out there models like the f7f didn't have counter rotating props mm -hmm. but obviously they they were featherable and ours aren't yeah um, so because the b24's props uh, were variable in real life but obviously aren't here we use counter rotating and in addition the the way we wired them up you are using two flight batteries mm -hmm. so we wired those just like our the B17 we wired those so that the inboard motors are oh. to a single battery and the outboard motors nice. are to a single battery nice. so obviously the hope is that you're you're yeah. checking your batteries yeah. and all that sort of good stuff but if you happen to lose a cell both sides. um you can tech we don't we don't recommend people try to take off with only two of the motors, but I have tested uh, the aircraft and it it does it is able to be flown and landed safely and quickly. 
on two motors alone. So um, that goes into the development side when we talk about uh, flying every aircraft at least 200 times, at least, mm -hmm. before we start green lighting and finalizing the mold. Um, it's it's finding, again, those sweet spots where does it have the power where where can it fly on two? Incidentally, for the B-24, uh, we probably won't talk about this on, on online on the forum, so this is a nice little exclusive for, for your listeners, is that with the B-24, it because we propped up to allow it to be flown, I'm just going to say confidently <laughs> mm -hmm. in, in any situation, is it turned out to be very fast. Uh, the Davis wing named for obviously the, the, the designer in the late 30s who developed this new high aspect wing for the Model 32, which is what the B-24 was originally called when it was in development and consolidated, is one of the artifacts of that wing is that it's it's slippery, it's, it's fast. Mm -hmm. um, um, it, it doesn't like slow speed, but, but it was fast, which is why the B-24 could fly further at a longer range and was faster than the B-17. Even if it only had, I want to say, about 25% less wing area, because while it had a wider wingspan, the wings are obviously very high aspects, so they're very narrow, mm -hmm. uh, than the B-17. So all that to say that the engineering that went into that wing is a feature that we wanted, really wanted to carry over into the model. Now, you can't use the exact airfoil, because obviously airfoils don't scale down, but we selected airfoils along that wing to give it uh, a very, very uh, high list coefficient, which is really nice, and it's still very docile in the stall, um, which is obviously very critical for a model. But the other sort of flip side of it is we unintentionally designed it to just be really a lot faster than we thought it would be. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so. So those who go to our website will notice there's some photos of the aircraft in a vertical climb and, uh, you know, being flown <laughs> upside down. And and our manual will disclaim that we, we, we hope that everyone flies it like a bomber should be right. flown, which is slow and stately and and efficiently. The prop set on, the, on those two 4S 3000s, by the way, with reasonable throttle management, we see seven, eight, nine minutes. I've pushed it above ten minutes mm -hmm. um, in a good headwind because the aircraft sort of performs like a bomber. So whereas we're used to discounting EDF jets because they only fly three or four minutes, yeah, right. the beauty of these of these big floaty aircraft is that they fly a lot longer um, and really give you that experience of of large aircraft. You can fly it, actually look at it, and appreciate it on those slow flybys. <laughs> Um, and then I guess whenever you wanted to pull up into a vertical forum. <laughs> now, that was my next. That was my next question. You know, we have the speed, which is again sometimes it's just fun. You want to firewall that thing and do a fast pass and listen to those four you know electric motors scream by you. But how are the slow flight capabilities? Because I'm one of those guys. They always make fun of me at the field all the time. Like I like to burn around with the best of them, but then I also like to really slow things down and just cruise around and something like that too. It just you know them four motors just coming by you real slow. Maybe it's uh, you know um, flaps down, gear down, just cruising by. So I want to know about the slow flight characteristics of this thing. Yeah, and you and I think in in similar ways. I think um, it's easy to go fast mm -hmm. it's 
it's technical to fly slow. You need to understand the aircraft. One, the aircraft needs to be able to fly slowly, but but it, I think it's a, a really good demonstration of a pilot's connection to his or her aircraft. The B-24 is designed to be as as docile an aircraft as it can be while still looking like it does, right? We can change airfoil and, and change um, washout as an example, but it still is a very narrow tip. So you're not going to, you're not going to want to bank into a turn um, when your full dirty flaps down and gear down. Uh, you're not going to kick the aircraft over into, a, say, a 40 degree angle yeah. and then full elevator to pull around. Um, that will certainly uh, <laughs> exacerbate a stall. Sure. However, when you're flying the aircraft normal and pulling it way back, I think um, insightfully one of our stateside testers, one of our media guys, who gets aircraft after we've done hundreds of test flights here in Asia, sent one to him. He looked at the specs and saw that the weight was a little – it didn't seem to jive. The wing loading didn't seem to jive. And as I always say, you just fly it. Fly the aircraft, mm-hmm. and he and the others who have since uh, confirmed that, uh, and they'll be able to to post their comments publicly once the aircraft uh, goes live. Is they've all been able to confirm just how surprisingly docile uh, the aircraft can be flown and and slowly. Um, I think it's the measure of an aircraft, whether it be a jet, big turbine, or or glider, or or a big warbird needs to be able to be flown slowly and confidently because like we're like we're fond of saying where i'm from takeoffs are optional landings are mandatory (laughs) (laughs) right so an aircraft can be a hundred miles an hour you know for all five minutes of that flight time but there's gonna come a time when it needs to get back down to zero yes and so we i think we're known for the f7f tiger cat for anyone listening who's flown the tiger cat or the avanti uh, or the spitfire when i say aircraft like that from flightline rc and freewing i think listeners who have those aircraft will immediately nod their heads and say yeah that thing can fly slowly yeah land slowly um this goes back to our conversation earlier chris when you asked about about runway condition. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's got pavement or, or half an inch of grass. Some people are in one inch and two inch. This aircraft, the way the scale works out, uh, its wheels are about two and three quarter inches tall, the mains. Oh, right? that's nice. Right, so they're, there's, they're actually the same wheels from our big A-10. Okay. So anyone who's flown that A-10 knows that, that it, it can go through anything. Mm-hmm. Provided that the wheel isn't more than fifty percent submerged, sure. because physics. Right. So, <laughs> so we still recognize people are going to be dealing with those with that rolling resistance when they land. So you have to be able to design the aircraft to be able to slow down confidently when it's level and on on approach. And I, I think we've done that. I think anyone who's used to the aircraft we've delivered in the past three years will be will be happily unsurprised that the B twenty four is is just like the others. Nice. Wow. Now I want to know though what were some of the I want to, I don't want to really say problems but what were some of the maybe earlier struggles with building a plane this big um, with four motors and uh, you know as far as anything whether it be flight characteristics or weight issues or yeah. whatever what were some of the early struggles with it. Well, the early struggles really began from the wing. Uh, physically, we mold over the size of the aircraft. Exactly how big 
does it need to be? We agree that 1.6 meter for a four engine, uh, which is what the B17 from Freewing is. Mm-hmm. I wasn't on that project a few years ago. It was probably on the small side. Mm-hmm. Certainly when people were used to the 1.875 meter wingspan B17. Um, so we wanted to have something in that size. The two meter B24 we settled on is roughly the same scale, uh, one and 16.7 ish as that B17. So for those who have both, you can sort of fly them side ah. by side and have, and have a good representation of what they would have looked like close enough uh, in the air in real life. But that size then presented the challenge of how do you reinforce the wing that's that's that high aspect. Right. Um, and again, as we just talked about, making it something that isn't going to be a tip-stalling you know, <laughs> demon. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the real aircraft was known that, yes, while it could carry a ton more bombs, twice as much ordnance as the B-17 could, the B-24 really didn't like slow speed. Um, it was really sort of hard to handle. The real B-24, uh, they knew... They knew it in the late 30s before they actually made the aircraft, I believe, like 39, 40, 42-ish around there. They already knew that the um, that a standard configuration T-tail, like what the B-17 has, uh-huh. that 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 they the B-24 would fly much better with that configuration. Hmm. But they went with the with the double oval. So these are sort of things that the original designers, you know, they knew that if they made it look a different way would fly better, but they made it the way it looks. And so now I, uh, I couldn't make the privateer, which for history buffs they know that the B twenty four after the war yeah. they put a regular tail on it, called it the privateer, and ah. it, it operated in the Korean War, and it flew amazingly. But but I can't make a privateer because it's the B twenty four Liberator that was the most produced bomber. Yes. you know that 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 command ordered seventeen thousand of. Um, so. So we're we're constrained by how the aircraft looks in real life, and that directly informs the challenges that we need to face in representing those in a smaller scale. So when it comes to reinforcing the wing, um, making it fly, I'll give you a, a good example. Initial prototypes had the aircraft flying like a cruiser, very low wing loading. Uh, it would it would fly confidently and cruise at about forty percent throttle problem was it was a little too light and didn't didn't really penetrate it was floaty oh right? no one wants a bomber to be going by on a slow pass and then it, it hits a gust and suddenly it, it begins to do the, the shimmy yeah so um it also didn't have very good vertical power which we don't expect people to be flying this thing to the moon but yeah. you want that bailout power if you're low and slow absolutely and you realize you're sinking too fast mm-hmm. right just a practicality we've all been there <laughs> At my field, most of the crash, uh, most of the holes in the ground are just before the apron. <laughs> but uh, when you need that power, you want it, and so that required us to change the propellers. And we 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 use new propellers and new motors to fi- try and find that KV power system balance, where we would have the acceleration we wanted. Uh, and the and the flight duration we wanted, while at the same time, what that did is it actually ended up making the aircraft way too fast. It's fast now, but it was way too fast before. And so now we needed to reinforce the wing. And then, if you see where I'm going with this, yeah. there is this constant back and forth between balancing the wing, mm-hmm. its strength, its its sort of twistiness, um, uh, its weight, its 
it's it's lifting ability and, and then the, the propeller systems, the, f the flight duration, their consumption, and then the, the rank speed and then static acceleration of the aircraft. All of those things just on that air, just on that wing section to get it to fly uh, were difficult. The other things were fairly straightforward. The B-24, thankfully, is it was known as the flying boxcar <laughs> right. because <laughs> you know she she's just a, it's just a boxcar. Uh, we we spoke with Collings Foundation, who who very generously provided some reference material to get some of the ideas, uh, sort of the shapes and contours right, and that's not so much difficult as it is just a lot of fun, um, and, uh, and 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 so that's what we ended up with, and I think. I think overall it was it was it wasn't one of our more difficult aircraft to have made, but for the flight line RC line specifically, it's it it was by it was certainly the most difficult. Um, jets tend to be easier because again, designing to fly fast mm -hmm. is, is different than designing to fly but slow. But this like. Mm. When you when you design a series, does the first plane is the first one always the hardest? Like, because you're 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 doing what you're talking about. You're you're designing that wing uh, internal structure, and you're finding that power system. Will some of this effort translate into the next plane, and the next plane, and the next plane? Uh, yes, it certainly does. That's that's at least our our objective. When we plot out, when I talk about series of aircraft, you know, we know. If, what we're doing for the next one or two years within reason there are always changes as I've mentioned but we sort of have an idea of where we're going to be and so we we try to select components and a power set and certainly a price point uh, true. that we want true. to control and we design for the price point we've already talked about price on, on this podcast but it's it always factors in um, I can make a really 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 amazing Focke-Wulf 190D, you know, a 190D9. Everyone wants a Dora. I can make that aircraft absolutely amazing, and it would cost absolutely a thousand dollars. You know, but there, there is just there's, but there's a there's a balance to how we do things. So, with the flight line line, we we set out to say if it is a 1.2 or 1.3 meter single engine series, it's going to use the same 4S battery. Um, the same ESC, and it's and it's going to have the same speed, right? It, so these things are all the same. Um, they're all standardized, and we select that because we we see that once we make that, once we standardize that, then it becomes easier to to move into twins where we actually use the same motors, but now we understood just the sizing differences and other intricacies of the design. Um, when it comes to when it comes to something like the B24, because the Liberator is now four engines, things don't translate as much because they're all new engines and they're all new propellers. We're not, we're not able to reuse parts. Um, but it, but in all of those different sizes, we're always designing for price points. The single engine 1.2s are 199. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of things I wanted to do to those aircraft uh, that we didn't. Because if we did, it would be 229, yeah, right. 239. You know, where does it end? We really wanted to put doors. Um, we really wanted to cut a new retract mold for for the F190. We really wanted to. There are so many things we could have done, but it begins with an idea, and it and then it processes 
on, on, within the confines of price. So our twins are all the same price, are, are both the same price for now, because we own two <laughs> for now. Uh, the both of the twins are the same three four nine, right? The single 1.6, all three of our 1.6 meter aircraft, they're all the same price. Um, and they are designed to that price point, and that really directly informs what we put into it when we just need to call it and, and what we decide to feature on the aircraft and what, what we decide to take away. Okay, now, for everybody that's with this and now probably have, at this point, if they're listening, have seen some photos of this thing and are now drooling, who... <laughs> Who is this airplane good for? Is it somebody who's a, a strong intermediate or just creeping out of the beginner intermediate that has some warbird experience? I want to know, like, who who is really, you know, what level could somebody buy this, put it together confidently, and fly it without any problems? Yeah, I, I love that question because it, it should always be said that our aircraft represent a range of skill sets and, and target audiences, um, and so the B-24 is not for everyone. What we'd most recommend the B-24 for, when, when we were designing that aircraft and envisioning, as I said at the top of our podcast, that person, that moment that someone opens that box, we were envisioning that person to be someone who has flown at least one or two propeller-driven aircraft and is confident in the landing pattern. Um, orientation isn't a concern because it's a two-meter aircraft. Uh, <laughs> um, speed and sort of it getting out of out of control isn't a really concern either because it has such a big wingspan and, and a high aspect wing. Um, obviously, it doesn't roll like a drill yeah. bit, so it's very difficult to to get this thing to roll and suddenly you're upside down and you lose orientation like a jet mm-hmm. would. Um, so. So, so someone who's concerned about orientation or speed or those types of things, this aircraft um, would be perfect for you. It, it isn't a concern. For someone who has not yet mastered bringing in an aircraft uh, and being able to bring it in s- uh, slowly and level, uh, I would recommend other aircraft. The B-24, just like the real one, uh, our model of the Liberator, has a very low ground clearance. Right. Uh, for those of you looking online now at the pictures at MotionRC.com, you'll see that the nose wheel, while over two inches tall, it it the top of that wheel is barely visible on the bottom of the fuselage. So you've got along the entire body of the fuselage, you have, you've got two and a half inches of clearance. Um, pilots who are used to approaching with a really deep flare um, will want to practice flying the aircraft yeah. and landing flat. Mm-hmm. Um, so that 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 skill set, people who I think, if you understood what I just said, you're probably okay to fly the aircraft. Um, but for someone who who really wants a bomber and and has maybe only had experience with an EDF or a jet, um, or for whom this is their first really big aircraft, if your first aircraft is the proverbial uh, one of my favorites, the 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 E-Flight T-28, Parkson T-28. If that's your first aircraft and you're thinking of making a jump into a multi-engine aircraft, <laughs> uh, I would recommend other multi-engine aircraft. Yeah. The, the, the Dynam Grand Cruiser is a really good one. Uh, that's an 1100 miller 
millimeter foamy that's really cheap, available from Dynam from many outlets, including Motion RC. For people who want to jump into twins, Dynam has a lot of twins um, that are low cost, 150, 200 ish dollars. Some of them are 250, some of the more recent ones. But those are good sized twins, 1.1 to 1.5 meter wingspan twins, uh, and that'll teach pilots how to fly a twin. Um, and once you're once you've sort of mastered that or mastered that confidence, then we'd recommend jumping into into a multi-engine something like a, like a bomber like this B twenty four Liberator. Hmm. Um, have you experimented at all with uh, the putting differential thrust, flying it with differential thrust? Uh, differential thrust in the ESCs? Uh, yeah, in the, in uh, the motors. Have. Like, uh, for instance, I got a twin here that um, I, you know, put a percentage of differential thrust for taxing and also for, you know, in the rudder control for turns. Sure. Yeah, I was just curious if you guys were use any of that or if or no. No, we have. We try to we try to anticipate all the different things people are going to try with the aircraft. Um, you know, we fly jets on ten cell to see if they mm-hmm. hold up, and and usually they don't. Yeah. They don't. So we say six and eight s is as best as right. you get. Um, so with this aircraft, we did we did try the differential. We decided that it uh, for two reasons not to use it. One, it didn't intuitively impart the type of control that we think differential style flyers. I know a lot of B seventeen guys fly differential mm-hmm. uh, would anticipate it. Maybe it's a function of the tail setup. I'm not exactly sure, but it doesn't fly as one would expect differential to. Um, the other aspect being, it didn't materially impact. It didn't materially improve how an air, how the aircraft okay. handles. Ultimately, my primary concern is, can the aircraft fly well? Yes or no. Um, if if the answer is no, then what do we need to do? Do we need to I don't know. I once bought an aircraft from HSD that required a throttle mix mm-hmm. uh, with with my elevator to keep the aircraft. Oh flying. yeah, yeah. You know, engineers, I don't know what they did in, in development, but it turned out that their thrust line was off, so they they told people you got to put it in a mix. <laughs> right. It flew great. I have, you know, I still have mine. Um, but we try to avoid that. We try to minimize the amount of programming someone needs to do. We like to just say, get the aircraft and fly it. That even translates to things like flaps. Uh, this aircraft, with reasonable speed deployment of flaps, you don't need to mix nice. in a lot of uh, nice. elevator, mm-hmm. uh, which which you think just it just simplifies the user experience for people, right? right? So, um, I would also say that if you <laughs> if if you wanted to DIY it, Chris, and and you wanted to try differential anyway, remember that your inboard and your outboard are. currently in the stock setup. Are, are tied into separate batteries. Oh, right. So if you're if you're moderating differential via you know by different ports, that's it's probably not going to work because you're going to yeah. you're, if you're tying into pairs, yeah, you're going to have to rewire. Gotcha. So interesting. <laughs> so knock yourself out, but uh, but but no, these are the types of conversations we hope people look at the what aircraft and say, yeah. yeah, I'd like to try something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, not everyone. There are a lot of people who just they don't like how 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 I make things, <laughs> which is okay. Um, we we want people to look at the aircraft and say, I think I would do this here. I think I would tweak this. I think I think I would do that. That's great because for them to do that, they need to buy one. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> and when they do, I think we always encourage people yeah. to fly the aircraft as is. 
um, I think it's a, it's a common theme. People say, I'm going to do this once I get it. We have this really great customer base of, especially mites on RC groups and Hobby Squawk, etc., who, who will see an aircraft and they'll, they'll pronounce their plans for the aircraft. And then they'll receive it. And there are some who, there's, they run the gamut. Some of them say, I need to do more than I had thought. Some of them say, I think I'm going to continue. But most of them say, I think I'm just going to keep it as it is. They get used to the aircraft, and then down the road, yes. they paint it, and they customize it. They make it yours. That's the rewarding part right. for us, right? We want to see that people, that an aircraft has earned a spot in that hangar, right? I want my aircraft to be the aircraft that if you <laughs> crash it, or if, or if the tree comes out and kills it and it wasn't your fault, right? <laughs> wing, wing. Um, that if that aircraft, for whatever reason, uh, for whatever force, takes a yeah. dirt nap, that you'll buy another one. Um, that, that that's the aircraft. We all have those aircraft in our heads, right? The aircraft in our fleets that we could not live yes. without, that they fly so good, they make us feel so happy, they make us look like great pilots, that... If they ever left us, we would replace them. So I think that's a mark of of good aircraft. I think that's the mark of a good uh, developer and, and, and company. And um, I think that's a lot of what we're so what we focus. Right. Question, Chris and uh, Alpha, silver yes. or green? Oh, for me, it's the green all day long, all day long. Ditto. Yeah, I, think, Ditto. I think it's the green. <laughs> um, yeah, we had a green and a silver P-38, and um, the greens led in the beginning. Silver had a really big resurgence. Now, about two years later, they're just about neck mm. and neck. But I think, the um, interestingly enough, I think the green, the matte green, yeah. presents really well. And to me, when I think yes. bombers personally, I just, you know, green, just, it feels dirty. Yes, it feels absolutely. Yeah, brutish. It, it feels... Um, I'm a big airbrush guy, so I'm, as soon as I get my my actual one that I get to keep and not have to kill, because we test for the we test obviously the, the limits that include killing aircraft. We need to see right where they, when where and when they fall apart. But once I get mine, I'm going to detail it and airbrush it and put the in that 3D printed yeah, this one looks like a cockpit well, area uh, and yeah. and do the weathering and just exactly they these were workhorses, right? I mean there were. There were 11 men in each of those wow. aircraft. I mean, if, you, if you really stop to think about it, right? Each of those things cost four and a half million dollars adjusted for what it would cost these days. I mean, thousands of them were built. Um, the Ford Motor Company built, I want to say, 6,000 or so of those. Imagine the people who worked on these aircraft, the great expenditure, and then each of those were carrying 10 or 11 men. Um, I mean, they're workhorses. Yeah. The men were, and the aircraft are. So, so, silver or green? I'm certainly, I'm definitely planning on on depicting mine as as one that's beaten and 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 war weary, yeah. but still in one piece. Right. Bringing the boys home. Any other questions, Andre? I think Andre? I'm good, man. I think we've grilled Alpha really nicely. I actually, <laughs> I I'm, know. I'm I'm thoroughly impressed <laughs> with this podcast. I I really hope the listeners, uh, we. Yeah, we love access to 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 the minds that create these things, and this was awesome for me. This yes. was absolutely awesome. Yeah, and I hope, like, yeah, was, I, was like a- I was saying earlier, I hope the people listening to this get a more 
deeply appreciate you know appreciate these developers and what they actually go through and the thoughts and you know every intricate little detail you know that they're not just slapping down their two hundred dollars and going yeah okay I got another plane that they're looking of well, what we talked about and what went into it and you know I I just hope they appreciate it a little more that's my you know goal here at the yeah. end and mine as well I mean this has been really fun and we like to where possible or not prohibited but for competitive reasons we like the idea of just sharing right as much as we can I think Motion RC is known for being that we're transparent we're transparent with our abilities our capabilities and our shortcomings and and we're open to that so if any of your listeners enjoyed the podcast and like hearing about stuff like this you know let us know I'll sort of they come back and talk we've got a lot of new aircraft coming down the pipe as always and so um where we can give people a look at, at what they're flying when you look over at that hangar and see that aircraft um, you know, understand that there are hundreds and hundreds of people that go into the creation of these aircraft um, I, I know because I manage them they're personal friends of mine I know their families and sometimes I think in this world it's easy to look at something that as consumers we purchase and we fly and we crash and we fix and we discard and we forget and and I think it's a missed opportunity to, to remember that there are <laughs> that there are Americans and there are people and there are fellow hobbyists like you, to all the listeners out there, that there are people just like you who are invested <laughs> uh, in bringing these products to you. And this is um, this is my career, and 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 I am one of one of many. And um, and the, we're, our jobs are made better and this hobby is made better by the interaction between the audience and, and customers and, and people who are in our seats. So we, we stand to hear it and we're, we're all ears to any of you, any of the listeners to this podcast who want to have fun. Absolutely. I couldn't say it any better. Um, so, if you again, join us. Go check out the B-24 Liberator just uh, announced here check out the pictures i hope you enjoyed the the podcast and the description and what the work that excuse me that uh alpha put into this thing so go definitely check it out at motionrc.com they got all kinds of stuff on their website anyway so you know if you're shopping around for christmas or anything (laughs) looking for something for your buddy go check out motionrc.com uh, I think that's about it. <clears throat> I'm starting to lose my voice. We've been chatting along three here for hours. almost three grow? hours now. Well, thanks for everybody at Motion RC for uh, giving us the opportunity to talk to Alpha and the information he's given. And hopefully we'll have him uh, back on again next time if he's got another new project. Be glad to. And we love hanging out and chatting with you and hope to bring you back soon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you. All right. And we'll talk to you again soon. Rock on. Fly low. Take care. No crashes. See ya.